Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. And of course, we invite you to subscribe for our new episodes via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, or elsewhere. Mondays is when those episodes come out. You can also find them at nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts and you will get uh, us and all the other National Review podcasts that are there to be offered. And by the way, while I have one moment here right at the top, currently uh, National Review doing a survey of NR podcast listeners and would love your feedback, especially if you say nice things about this show. Uh, You can go to uh, their Twitter handle at NR podcast. The link is stashed right there or podcast.nationalreview.com slash survey 2018 to fill things out. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner is standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff. I don't know, Scott. We've been on a lot of journeys here on Political Beats. Uh, we've been on a lot of trips. Uh, we've been on some good ones, and I think maybe today we're a bad trip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we shall see. Uh, find, find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. This is a bit of a special episode as you're about to find out, because our our guest for this episode is, uh, well, he's a lecturer in the Music Business University at at Georgia. Uh, He's the chief muckraker at the Tricordist. He's an artist rights activist, also 2014 Chamber of Commerce Global Intellectual Property Champion. However, you might know him better as the chief songwriter, band leader for Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker. You can find him on Twitter as well, at David C. Lowry. Yes, David Lowry joins us on Political Beats. David, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks. Hey, thanks for having me on. I look uh, look forward to this, I think. I think. <laughs> we, we anticipate it will be most painless. Maybe the painless. biggest mistake you've ever made, but, but we'll find out. Okay, well... No, I can think of a couple of others, but anyway, but those won't come up until, say, I'm nominated for a Supreme Court seat or something like that. So, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure um, they, they involved the touring van somewhere in 1987, something like that, right? Yeah, it involved like the bumper of a BMW behind the Gold Rush Lounge in, <laughs> in Tennessee, uh, a moderately popular uh, rockabilly punk band, and two Ukrainian women who may or may not have been sex workers. So, uh, <laughs> oh, boy. I'm looking forward to that one being unearthed. Oh, wait, I just did it myself. So. Uh, now, well, I, I think you'll be all right. Now, we usually okay. begin the episodes by asking our guests to sort of tell us how they got into the, uh, the, the business and where they, how they ended up where they are, uh, and especially how they, why they like the band that they've chosen. We kind of have an idea about uh, why you like the bands that we're going to talk about today. You're yeah, in them. Yeah, You're... yeah, David, how did you get into Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker? <laughs> but hmm, but yeah, if you, you, you started those bands. That's how you got into them. If you want to give us kind of right. a, a 20,000-foot view of, of, of your life, I guess, from uh, from the start of the, from, from you know, being a mathematician uh, and being a band member to where you are today in, in a minute or two, tell us a bit about David Lowry. Okay, so I started playing in like a number of bands when I was in college at uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, Go Banana Slugs. That is really (laughs) our uh, mascot. Um, I was, uh, and then, so I was in a number of bands, one of which right before I graduated was called Camper Van Beethoven and the Border Patrol. 
Um, we later just changed her names to Camper Van Beethoven. It wouldn't fit on most flyers, so marquees. <laughs> and it was a band where everybody in the band was playing an instrument they didn't normally play. Like I was the bass player in most bands um, that I was in, and you know Jonathan Sagal, the violin player in Camper, was actually a guitarist, and he was learning violin. Chris Mola is an extraordinary guitarist, and he was playing drums. Victor was actually a friend of my sister's, and I was teaching him bass. Um, and so we just started this kind of throwaway thing where we were basically recording and playing songs that we could kind of barely play. And, uh, you know, I was programming computers for a farm, um, and also driving a truck for them. It's a really odd collection of jobs I had. And, uh, we made this record, um, for $435, I think, was the tally on it. it was, we call it Telephone Free Landslide Victory. We put it out on our friend's label. And just by chance, um, my cousin, who's English, told me, if you want a record played on the BBC, you have to write a personal note to the DJ. They won't accept form letters, and they won't accept, like, uh, pluggers or promotional um, records unless it comes with a personal note. So I did that, and but we but that was probably sometime in June of nineteen eighty five, and somewhere around September I get a letter because there's no real internet, right? So I get a letter in the mail from my cousin, like, like basically you know in all caps handwriting kind <laughs> of is like that we're getting played on the BBC, so just sort of randomly. It was BBC Two, maybe not BBC One, but still, that's really good. Just sort of randomly out of nowhere, we put out this record ourselves, and the BBC started playing it, and that's sort of where it all begins. I was still in all these other bands, right? And this is my side project, and we all kind of had to look at each other and go, "I guess we're going to have to quit our other bands, you know, <laughs> or at least sort of take a furlough for them or something like that." This is like so weird, you know, that this is kind of happening. Everybody's coming home. Anyway, so that's that's where I that's kind of where I began, just by chance, sort of want my side project kind of began to take off, and it was only because of this random bit of information that my cousin gave me. Uh, talk about your know, fortuitous circumstances. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, otherwise, you might be, you know, like, you know, a quant or something like that. Right? You know, like, well, exactly. And I did, 
actually spend time as a quant, but we'll talk about that later. Right. <laughs> I just, I, you know, we normally do these long discussions. I want to keep mine really brief. You know, this is a story of two two bands, really. Can not only Camper Van Beethoven, obviously, but Cracker as well. Um, you know, Scott has been a huge fan of Cracker for a very long time. I have been a huge fan of Camper Van Beethoven, uh, uh, basically since I was a teenager. Um, and you know, I'm not going to give you the long spiel about how I got into them. Uh, REM and people talking about REM played a big role in that. Uh, but when I discovered this band, I immediately fell in love with them. I just want to say, you know, for people who, who may never have ever heard of this group, I uh, can't recommend them enough. And you're going to hear about them as we go through their discography here. Um, what what Camper Van Beethoven was to me, uh, a big musician and a nerd, was the band that in my heart I would have started if I had been good enough to start a band, to be in a band. <laughs> like, you know, I love like Radiohead. I love Talk Talk. I love like, you know, dreamy stuff like, you know, Tortoise. Um, but I, I would never have been able to make that music. That wasn't my style. There are only two bands that I've ever listened to. And I thought like, all right, you know, if I had actually done this seriously, what would I have done? It's either Camper Van Beethoven or a group that came a little bit later that I feel spiritually owes them something of a debt. And that's pavement. And I think those two groups and especially Camper when I was in high school and then in my early college years were just so, so powerful to me because the eclecticism uh, is something that that never fades away. This is a band that you know had you know guitars, bass, drums, all that, but actually its primary instrumental hook was Jonathan Segel on violin that added that very very strange vibe to them and allowed them to cover all sorts of strange musical modes and and you know bizarre like you know Eastern European interludes. But here's the trick, and what I finally realized after listening to them long enough is that you guys can end up. I say I say these guys, and I realize I'm talking to the guy who's <laughs> the lead singer of the band. You guys could do any basic kind of music that you wanted and it would sound like Camper Van Beethoven because you didn't actually set limits for yourselves by starting off being just so self-consciously weird you know writing lyrics that I, I'm, I'm almost certain were intentionally they never made sense like you know like you know half of them are, are gibberish or inside jokes or things like that and then later on you know you develop their the real meaning develops into these songs but the first part of it it's just music for music's sake we'll try to throw in whatever or end, you know, whatever interesting thing that we get, and we're only going to put it on the record if we like the way it sounds. And if it like the way it sounds, we're not going to overworry it. We're not going to, we're not going to like, you know, try to write the, the extra verse or the extra chorus or put the nice sheen of uh, another guitar overdub on it. It's good. It goes. It's done. Fine. That's the early Camper Van Beethoven sound. And then yeah. carries that all the way through, you know, throughout, you know, your entire career. And, and here's the most curious thing that we'll get to, you know, then you, you, you know, the band falls apart. You go do Cracker. Obviously, a lot of popular success with Cracker, way more than Camper ever had. And then Camper gets back together, and then Cracker is still doing music. And they're like these two trains running in parallel, and then they converge. And then they converge, and then all of a sudden, you just see like, hey, you know what? It was all related to one another. You know, all along, and it's you, you should see the hand motion I'm making. It's like dolphins uh, <laughs> flitting amongst one another in the water here. It's 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 just a it's just it's, a wonderful it's, feeling it's, to see these often music. Describe Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven as dolphins playfully flitting alongside the boat in the ocean. Is that yes, what word, but but I like it anyway. Flitting. Yes, yeah. flitting. Yeah, that is the standard line. Now I know I, I promised I wouldn't go on, so I'm gonna cut myself off here. Scott, you take the wheels. 
So, yes. So Jeff talks about Camper, and I love Camper, but I Cracker is one of my top, whatever, top five favorite bands of all time. And I am just unbelievably pleased as punch, to use a uh, uh, term, to be uh, talking with David today and talking with everyone about the band. You know, I, I, I sent, you know, sending Jeff emails talking about Cracker and wh- what's the band. And I said, Cracker is David Lowry and Johnny Hickman. And a bunch of people that kind of rotate in and out, and some last longer than others, but it's David and Johnny at its core. It's rock, it's Americana, it's definitely country, there's some lingering punk influences. Cracker does not forget that rock and roll is supposed to be fun at its core. They were born in Southern California, they migrated to Virginia. You hear that in the music, the sense of place is very important, I think, in a lot of, uh, a lot of your music. And I, I know Jeff's going to ask about that later, I think. But first time I heard Cracker was Teen Angst. My college radio station was all over Teen Angst. Uh, my local college station was, and that's the first time I heard it. But What com- What college station was that? It was WONC at uh, Naperville, Illinois, at North Central College, where I later went to college and worked at that radio station and spun a whole lot of Cracker and Camper Band Beethoven while I was there. Okay. Um, I don't think I ever visited that one, but I spent a lot of time at college radio stations over yeah. the years. So anyway, go on, sorry. No, and then uh, what, what, what just put me over on the band, and certainly I, I had heard low smash hit, but my... My, my girlfriend at the time, my ex-girlfriend, in one of the uh, best things she ever did for me, uh, bought me, gave me a copy of The Golden Age, which was the follow-up to Kerosene Hat. And I can tell you, in the room I was in, the first time I heard Big Dipper, and that song completely sold me on this band. Hey Jim, a Kerouac, a brother of the famous Jack. So he likes to say, lucky bastard He's sitting on the cafe, Zeno steps With a girl I'm not over yet But watching all the world go by Did I make you feel that sad? I'm honestly flattered But if she asked me out I'll be hers without a doubt I'm that big dipper And uh, I own every piece of music that Cracker has put out. I, I have the, the forever demos that were leaked one by one. Uh, not leaked necessarily, but, you know, put out one by one on the old Cracker website around, uh, uh, around uh, 2001 or so. And, uh, and the music made from start to finish. I, I think Cracker is one of the most consistent bands in terms of putting out quality material. And uh, not just album by album, but song by song. Um, and I, I love every single album that's, that, that, that Cracker has put out. And I love the Camper stuff, too, of course. But uh, Cracker is really like my, just it's my, one of my bands. I, I love Cracker, and I love spreading the gospel of Cracker, as I have been with Jeff these past couple of weeks. So, so pleased, and hopefully that gives people an introduction about where Jeff and I are coming from. And so I guess we begin our journey uh, through this 
this discography with, with Camper Van Beethoven, and, and, and Jeff's our resident expert there, so I, I send things over to him to start things off. I mean, I guess I would first ask, is this the best band ever started as basically kind of a joke? Um, I, it may be. I think that, like, you know, like as as David actually said already, it's like this is everyone's side gig, you know, and they were just doing this, you know, like, you know, to, to while away the time, learning new instruments, playing goofy shit, pardon my language, you know, as they were, uh, you know, playing in other, you know, more kind of like their their real gigs. And then, you know, they put the album out, Telephone Freelance Light Victory, and it becomes a thing. And suddenly it's the main band. The first thing I have to say about those first three uh, independent records, uh, it's you know, Telephone Freelance Light Victory, two and three, and uh, then the self-titled album are that they, they are just monuments to not overthinking it. And this is from a band that overthought lyrically, you guys seem to like, be lost in your minds because there's always these very self-referential jokey lyrics half serious sort of deceptive trying to like you know lead people to think that there's a meaning there when there's really not i remember i you know i just found out believe it or not earlier today after like two decades of loving you guys that uh you have a blog where you've explained the origins of some of these songs and then you reveal that you know take the skinheads bowling those lyrics aren't about anything there's no meaning to that at all don't try to read any meaning. We, we, we deliberately tried to like just put together random phrases, and I was like, damn, damn, I had no idea. I always thought there was some sort of actual narrative going on there, um, and I think a lot of other people did too, but it comes through more apparently on the rest of that first album, which of those early three actually I think is, is the weakest, although it's still great, but what I think people don't really aren't prepared for it when they pick it up because they hear it's like this one of these great 80s alt rock indie rock artifacts is that uh it's like 75 percent instrumental <laughs> it's just like, most of it is like these really funny instrumentals that aren't throwaways they're just like like interesting sort of uh, oftentimes like they're they're half eastern greek gypsy music surf rock kind of instrumentals and then in between them you have all those songs and you know i'm you know my opinion is obviously a little less relevant here than the guy who was the lead singer of the bands, but I would say that the irony of, of that first album is that Take the His Skinheads Bowling isn't the best song on the record by a long shot. I mean, I, I think that the best song on uh, Telephone Free Landslide is, is, is probably either I Don't See You or Oh No. Oh No, what a great song! Exclamation point. Those and like ambiguity song, that's where, you know, the band really comes together and like, you know, starts writing melodies and, you know, even yes, you know, making concessions to throwing in choruses. But the rest of this fits together like like a wonderful curate's egg. It's just strange and weird. And if you listen to them as individual tracks, I'm not sure that Yankee Go Home makes a lot of sense. But in the context of everything that goes around it, it makes perfect sense, and that's what makes that first album great. David, what do you, you know? What do you remember about recording this thing for four hundred and thirty-five bucks? Well, I mean, we did it like an assembly line. Um, Anthony's guest was only available. The drummer was, and that's his real name, Anthony Guess. It wasn't a stage name. 
Um, and uh, he, he was available for one day for us. Like he played in actually like a lot of that sort of Norteño Tex-Mex stuff comes out because he lived down in King City, down in sort of the Salinas Valley. And he played in like sort of these half country, half Norteño bands all the time. So one day he started playing our songs kind of in that style. <laughs> and we're like, that's fantastic. Let's do that. Right. And that's kind of where some of this, uh, that's one element of kind of the throwaway. Why are we playing songs like Yankee Go Home? Why are we playing songs like Borders Gone? Stuff like that. That's where some of that comes from is just these kind of accents because it was our side band. So we really didn't have anything to lose, right? That's a lot of what's going on is really with that first record is kind of our, our side band. And number two, I mean, we didn't have this word back then, but we were essentially trolling our peers and our sort of fellow travelers sort of in the underground northern california sort of music scene because you know virtually every band we were in was either some kind of po uh, punk or post-punk band and then we'd show up with camper van beethoven as an as a you know as kind of our side band very op the very you know first of five opener and we'd like, uh, you know, wear like ponchos and flares and <laughs> Birkenstocks and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of this stuff, especially the instrumentals, were um, fast instrumentals so that when sort of the punkish crowd got uh, sort of really felt like they were essentially being trolled by us. Got restless. Yeah. These, yeah. They, they, we would play these fast ska songs and everybody would skank, right? Like the punk rock kids would skank. Oh, it was go literally up a self-defense mechanism. And that's why that record has so many of those things on it. <laughs> the first record is because we just kind of kept making them up. It's like they were, they were the, the, the one thing that was keeping, uh, keeping us from getting our asses kicked by like that one big skinhead who was drunk and didn't quite understand what was going on. Right. <laughs> the, the angry guy in the front row gobbing out you exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Just, just play a Scott song. Okay. He's calm again, you know? So, so that's what a lot of that is. A lot of it is too, though, that the sort of the faux uh, Eastern European faux ethnic stuff, though, is because we really like surf music, mm. and surf music was largely instrumental. And it was always there was always like some guitar player like Dick Dale playing, like trying to imitate an oud, playing the theme to like some '30s. British like Lawrence Arabia show, but the music's actually really written by like some English composer trying to do Arabic music. So everything's being like, there's elements of like the authentic style in there, but everything has been sort of put into a blender and just sort of, but and semi-processed just like you put in the blender, but you hit the button really quick. And so <laughs> uh, it's not smoothly blended. It's just these complete, chunks of styles and motifs and stuff like that from all over the place 
and and there was a reason that we left it that way is because there was a big movement for like world music. I don't, I don't even know how to describe this in Northern California at that moment. And to us, it just came off as like a bunch of college educated musicians, like playing watered down music from around the world. So we were like, <laughs> it can't sound like that. It has to be screwed up in some way. It has to be totally wrong. Right. That's what that album is. I wanted to, I mean, not just on the first album, but the, but the albums to come too. And this will sound very simple when I ask it, but why is something an instrumental? And yeah, I know it means it has no lyrics, but is it an instrumental because you conceive it that way? Does it become an instrumental because you can't find the right lyrics? What makes a song become an instrumental and not a, a lyric track? Well, in those days, it was largely because, um, you know, Greg and Jonathan often came up with these really engaging melodies over some chord progression I was making. Or sometimes it's me actually making up those, like, you know, probably the most sort of was from a later record, but opening theme. That's actually me making up the melody, even though it sounds more like one of those guys did it. Mm -hmm. But if the melody that you're playing on, that Greg, the lick that Greg would come up with on guitar, or the melody that Jonathan was playing violin, if it was engaging enough to stand on its own, we would just leave it instrumental and just move on to the next thing. I mean, it was just literally like, <laughs> eh, it's more or less done. Let's go on from there. <laughs> wasn't a lot of thought other than that it just kind of crossed the threshold to where it seemed finished and we would stop and those guys are full of ideas and riffs even to this day you know it's like and so we often left things instrumental we were actually talking about that how we need to do like sort of an epic just instrumental prog rock 20 minute thing you know with odd time signatures and everything we haven't got around to it <laughs> i mean i bet it would be pretty entertaining because that actually kind of carries me to what the next point i was going to make which is about two and three and this is going to sound strange but i i you know this is like one of those early camper albums i consider the second half of that record the b-side you know the side that that runs from uh you know bad trip all the way to no more bs mm -hmm. At the end, I consider that one of the best sides of kind of like mid-80s alt-rock ever. And one of the funny things about it is that there are no real songs on it. <laughs> everything, everything is kind of like a half-finished idea. This is going to get back to what I was saying earlier, like, you know, Bad Trip Circles, Dustpan. Dustpan is a riff in search of a song, but I'm so glad that you didn't try to give it a song because it's just like a really great guitar riff chain of circumstance and then there's what the the, the zz top one uh, zz top goes to egypt yeah. which it sounds exactly like the title it sounds like you know zz top playing in egypt in front of the pyramids like the grateful dead would do or something like that all of those songs uh, they just all flow together and i can't imagine i mean they weren't written as any kind of instrumental or musical suite the lyrics are almost an afterthought they're just moods that like work and why question it 
why work why overthink it and mess up the the alchemy of these little great songs these cameos these little squibs that end up working perfectly uh, again circles is a song that is is just a, a series of chord changes you know vaguely psychedelic or post-punk chiming series of chord changes but it works i wouldn't want it to be any more well thought out or put together than it is and uh, you know again it's sort of like the willingness to not overdo it it's hard to have that kind of restraint i always just assumed that like everybody was really stoned so they didn't try too hard i don't know if that was the case and so that's what my question is is like did you make that conscious decision or did you just like you know you know whatever you didn't care i don't know i I always wonder how it came out because it feels like it's automatic music automatic writing in a way yeah um well there there's a fair amount to unpack there because uh, but 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 generally yes I, I I agree with you. Um, there's a lot of like two and three is named two and three because it's two different batches of songs that should have been the second and third album. And somebody at our distributor said it doesn't really sound like either of these albums are finished. So we just put them together. So um, sort of with the belief I guess that quantity in its own way is quality. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know, but yeah, like exact, uh, you're, you're exactly right. For instance, on circles, Jonathan had managed to figure out how to get the tapes to play backwards from the first album. And essentially we were sitting around drinking beer and probably smoking pot. And, um, we started playing along with our songs backwards listening to them backwards so circles is based on us playing along let me guess it's oh no is it see you what it's oh no yeah it's i, think Ida, it is I remember oh playing no backwards. i remember teaching myself these songs on guitar and thinking well, those are all just the same chords that they're just jumbled up so is that i can't believe that yes it's completely backwards it's just us playing that song trying to play that song backwards and when the chorus comes in it is actually the chorus to uh um yeah to oh no That's why it's called circle. And then we have this other piece of song that's the middle part. That was another just idea. And we just cut the tape and just dropped it in the middle of there. (laughs) (laughs) If you notice, like the instruments aren't even the same tones or anything. It's just like (laughs) completely a tape edit. I mean, what I love about it is that it just feels so unselfconscious. You know, like a lot of these kinds of moves will will feel very kind of like, you know, overly doctored, overly thought through. And it's just like, yeah, you know what? We just hit the record button. This is what came out, which obviously I guess it wasn't. But I guess that that takes me to my next question, which is, you know, on on the self-titled follow-up, which I think is is a great album. There are some songs on there that honestly I got no time for. I I don't really, you know, think that, uh, you know, that you know 
there's, there's one Led Zeppelin parody too many on that record, I think. Stairway yeah. to Heaven doesn't really work. I actually think if you took these first three albums, I actually think that third one is the weakest, except it has a couple really good things. Well, it has that one-two punch, which is going to be at the end of the show when I name my five CVB songs, which is that We Saw Jerry's Daughter Surprise Truck, kind of like you know, you know, it, yeah. they, they they segue together. I, that seems to be like a, a parody of Deadheads because it's like, yeah, we saw Jerry's daughter. Man, we were so high; it was so cool. But it's a great. <laughs> we actually did see Jerry's daughter. We were in Eugene, and somebody elbowed us and goes, "That's Jerry Garcia's daughter." Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Thus, a song is born, right? And That's then surprise- a song title. A song title is born. Always start with your song title. Always start with, with the titles, time. right? And then yeah. surprise truck. It just sounds like just mean. It's nasty. And then, of course, there's uh, so many other great things like the history of Utah on that, which actually sounds kind of like the history of Utah, basically told, you know, more or less straight. Um, mm-hmm. But what I want to know is where did all the psychedelia explode from on that album? All of a sudden, you're doing this incredibly faithful cover of Interstellar Overdrive, which I'll point <laughs> out isn't just faithful to the album version. Like you get like the, the early 70s live Floyd vibe on that. As somebody mm-hmm. who knows that stuff, I was like, where does this come from? Was it just a decision like, yeah, you know what? Today we're going to try some, some really heavy psych music. Why Interstellar Overdrive? Why that kind of heavy psychedelic push on the third one? First of all, I think we actually play Interstellar Overdrive better live than it's recorded, which is kind of a little bit of a tragedy, but still, it's okay. Um, but there was a guy at um, SST Records, you know, if you remember the groundbreaking punk rock label from that, you know, Black Flags label. I, I lament um, all of the albums engineered by Spot. Okay, well, yes, we do. <laughs> right. But there are some great bands on that. And, um, yeah, I'm a big Hooskers fan. Yeah. Yes, um, and there's this Meat Puppet second album. Yes. Um, and yes. Minutemen. Um, but anyway, but we we became friendly with one, one of the guys who worked at SST. He was the promotions person. And actually, he had this, he had this funny thing. I called him up and go, man, we're getting played on the BBC. And he's, he says, Box of Laughs, which was my serious band. And I go... <laughs> No, Camper Van Beethoven. He's like, what? Your joke band? (laughs) (laughs) And I go, yeah, what do we do? (laughs) Anyway, um, anyway, this is guy Ray Farrell. He's sort of a legend in that kind of part of music uh, world. But he had listened to the Camper demo that I had given him. Um, No, not the Camper demo. I think it was album. I don't think I gave him a record until like the second album or the first album or something like that. And he says, oh, so you guys are really influenced by Kaleidoscope. And I was like, who's Kaleidoscope? (laughs) Which is this 
Inland Empire, Southern California band that had David Lindley in it. It was a psychedelic band. And, uh, you know, it had violin in it and stuff like that. And so he made, he, he was a great vinyl collector, and he just made us these mixtapes. Well, first of all, he made us copies of the Kaleidoscope was out of print. So he made us copies of the albums on cassettes. And then he made us these mixtapes of all of this obscure Southern California psychedelic rock. And that all comes into the van, like about towards the end of the second album. And that's where we sort of go. That's how we kind of get even more psychedelic (laughs) for the third album is listening to all of this sort of early garage fades to psychedelia from the west coast with kaleidoscope being heavily featured so so that's one thing that happens the second thing is you know a lot of that stuff is just just us just screwing around in the studio and turning the tape over backwards and getting into sort of our beatles tape manipulation phase (laughs) or something like that too and that's why there's a bunch of throwaway stuff on that and and that's that's why i say that's a weaker album is because we just kind of you know, we we sort of got to the end of our recording time and go, okay, well, look, that's an album, and we we put that out. Um, I remember sending uh, Interstellar Overdrive to Eugene Chadbourne to play guitar solos uh, <laughs> over top of that with Greg, and we, he mailed it back to us at the studio, and we went in the studio and listened to it, and Greg Leischer, the guitarist in Camper Van Beethoven, says, it sounds like Guitar Center on a Saturday afternoon. And he gets <laughs> oh. up and walks out of the studio. <laughs> Which he oh, did. Man. And me and Jonathan look at each other. We go, is that bad? I mean. Um, oh, man. And I've been at Guitar Center on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it was perfect description. And the whole thing about it is like me and Jonathan are like, is that necessarily bad? You know, I mean, it's like we're in Camper Van Beethoven. This started as a joke. <laughs> so, um, and there's another thing about that album. The third album actually has a title. Do you know what the title is? Yeah, I remember somewhere you said there was a secret. It's something about something swimming upstream or some weird. Yeah, thing like we had this. We had we used to get letters almost every day from a couple of fans mailed to our PO box. Called this, and there was like these long rambling things, and one of them had said, "I dreamed." This began with, "I dreamed that your new album was called Soviet Spies Swim Upstream Disguised as Trout." <laughs> it does. It does sound like a camper van Beethoven title. I and so what we did is, in, at the very end of the liner notes, they're all just handwritten. It just says, "Soviet Spies." swim upstream disguised as trout and we wanted to list it in the in the you know used to have to get these catalogs of advanced releases if you worked in a record store mm-hmm. and it'd say the title of the album and our distributor is like well it doesn't say it really anywhere on the album so this is going to confuse people right but we wanted to call it so it's by swim upstream Green disguise disguises trout, but we didn't want to actually put it anywhere where anybody would notice that that was the title of the album. So it became just eponymous, but that's actually the title. And then to just make sure that whoever this was that wrote us that letter knew that we were communicating that to them through their dreams, we etched into the inner groove. Of the vinyl original pressing. If you look at the inner groove of the original pressing, it's actually handwritten in there. It says "Soviet spies <laughs> swim upstream disguised as trout." Right. 
that that woman went on to form her own cult. I just want you to know that. <laughs> yeah, I probably. Yeah, I know. Or it was like maybe that cured her. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Did it, she, actually, she, yeah, after that, she probably ended up like you know, you know, running for Congress at some point. Yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's California. You can never know. By the way, they did you write a letter to the band Camper Van Beethoven <laughs> in 1985? <laughs> Exactly. Yes, that will be in the Senate confirmation. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Senator. Did you? <laughs> God. But, but talking Sorry. about obstacles. No, we're not supposed no. to joke about this. Show. Oh, no, no. no that's fine. Talking about obscurantism, though. I mean, so for first of all, I, I finally found the EP that you released between this and the major label debut. Um, it, it was called, you know, Vampire Can Mating Oven. And it was on. You finally, it was released on some rarities album called uh, what was it? Like Camper Van Antiquities. I bought it when I was like yeah. nineteen years old. And the liner notes were were the worst sort of lies, the worst yes. sort of indefensible lies that could ever be told. Fake to, news, maybe you know. Fake, like, but, dude, we fake news. To- fake <laughs> news for a gullible fan like me. <laughs> and I was started thinking, wow, Camper really had a Ringo phase. Whoa, what was this all about? <laughs> Okay, for those who don't know, this is an AP called it's a Vampire Can Mating of it. It's like 1987. It's right after those first three albums. It's kind of like transitional. It's really good. And the only reason I would bring it up because it's like an EP, but it's it's I would argue that some of the best work of that early career is on this record. And I do it's not the best album. I agree with you. I think it's our best album pre-Virgin. Why did you throw it? Why did you throw seven languages away on an EP? I love processional. I love ice cream every day. And even even that goofy cover of Photograph, which is you know the Ringo Star hit. That's a good cover. That's a good song. What don't we say somewhere on there that like something's from a film? Yo, yeah, from a film from a nineteen seventy-three film called like Vampire Murders or something like that. And like Vampire Surfers. Vampire Vampire Surfers. And yeah, we starred in it. We had cameos as the band playing in the background, (laughs) something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And people look for that film, right? So uh, like people are like, you know, because that was the kind of thing that maybe if you went to that really super cool like video shop that uh, you know had the b movie section every and, like, college sort of had flash of horror everybody went we had fans who went to shops looking for that movie and they, they, didn't, they didn't realize that the date was 1973 so you would have been like what you know nine I or 12 or 13 12 or, yeah, yeah, right. it would have been eight i think so yeah <laughs> <laughs> so for, so two questions, I guess. First of all, uh, that that fantastic again, seven languages. I will insist upon this. Seven languages, one of the best camper songs ever written. Um, I, you know, I it's it's always too hard to tell with you know as opposed to like Cracker, you know, uh, with Camper, like you know who contributes to what. But I I find that to be such an impressive song in every way. Yeah. 
who's the primary force writing it um but that and also processional that's the best instrumental i think you've ever done and i just always kind of like you know it's very avant-garde it's it's not easy it's challenging but it works and then why do you why do you intentionally try to you spread lies about yourself all over the (laughs) internet and the world you know even to the present day yeah uh, well it's kind of like you know one it's our sense of humor you know it's not like we're you know we're doing this for any bad reason other than Hi. it's just kind of funny to us right? right and every once in a while somebody gets caught up in it and you know we do feel a little bad there i'm, I'm sure that there are, we feel a little bad that our fans obsessively looked for a movie called vampire surfers <laughs> um, which somebody really actually needs to make that movie i mean they have sharknado um, so, but this is, you know, it, the, the idea that Camper was just a band has sort of been sorely sort of, sort of not been explored enough. There was a, there was an element of sort of like, I don't know, propaganda for absurdism or, uh, you know, make America weird again. Right. Uh, I'm not really sure what, what it is we were doing, but there's an element that's sort of almost beyond the music that we're trying to do, you know, like we're, we're, we're a little, we got a little bit of like the performance artist in us, you know, mm-hmm. or something. I, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. And so that was all part of the brand. I hate that word. The sort of the <laughs> brand of the band, but there's not a better word for it right now. I mean, everybody knows what I'm talking about, but it's, that was all part of the brand of the band, the band yeah. right? I mean, it's why my, my, my wife's in marketing. Our, yeah, fan, okay. our fan club was my, called the Paul McKinney fan club because Paul McKinney was my roommate. <laughs> <laughs> He got the mail when I was gone. So he get all these letters to the Paul McKinney fan club, right? It was pretty funny. <laughs> all right, Scott, you want to take us up to the, the big break? First of all, I mean, I guess the first question is, how the, how the hell did you ever get signed to a major label deal? <laughs> because right. as, as eclectic as it is, it's just study that Virgin was willing to bite. But I'm so glad that they were because this next record, our our beloved revolutionary sweetheart, um, I'm you know, I'll just reveal right now, I think this is the best Camper Van Beethoven record. Scott, you want to say something first? Well, I, you know, th- this is a major label. This is Virgin coming in. Uh, there's an outside producer. I think it's Dennis Herring's first uh, time producing the band. Uh, and he would do so in, in the future as well. But, uh, you know, I, I, I listened back to the album for the episode and there are so many songs i think man that 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 could have been i mean it could have been on the radio that could have been like um one of these days like that that, that has a single quality to it never go back i think too um Mm -hmm. the one song that i always go back to from this album is i i I really love turquoise jewelry and um 
uh, I, 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 you know, like a Captain Beefheart influence to a lot of it too. Like the random Absolutely. horns and the, the harmonica. I come down from your treehouse condominium. I stopped out and ran that stage whack the wood on the side. I take off that jumpsuit, you look like Graceland. I stand up all Um, and I thought I, I think I saw an interview at one point where it, it, the, the lyric that always sticks out is, you know, take off that jumpsuit. You look like Grace Slick. And it was based on a, a, a potential Grace Slick sighting in California. Is that right? Yeah, I was in Mill Valley coming home from a show. Yeah, you know, sort of north of San Francisco. I was in, I think, Mill Valley. I got off the freeway to fill up with gas at a 7-Eleven. I was coming home from, I think, a show somewhere up in the, uh, you know, Sonoma, something up there above north, you know, up in the wine and weed country. And um, there was a woman in the uh, 7-Eleven that I was like, that has to be Grace Slick. <laughs> but I wasn't like too shy to ask if it was Grace Slick. And she was buying coffee at the 7-Eleven, right? It was kind of like seeing Jerry Garcia's daughter walking down the street. And I mentioned that to other people. And they're like, well, I think she lives in Southern California and stuff like that. But to this day, I was like, I'm pretty sure I saw Grace Slick at like two in the morning in a 7-Eleven in Mill Valley. You know? it's, it's so funny because like I grew up in Washington, D.C. And, the DC and she was wearing a jumpsuit. Kind of like a designer kind of jumpsuit. You remember that period? Like, it, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, like it wasn't like she wasn't wearing a. She had been changing car tires or anything like that, right? <laughs> or she hadn't been in like a racing crew pit or something. You know, the Washington D.C. version of this for me is that I, I swear to God, when I was a kid, I saw Ted Koppel buying a loaf of bread at my local Giant, and, and I was like, "Oh, that's Ted Koppel! Oh man, I can't believe that." You know, Ted, it's funny because like who? Who even remembers who Ted Koppel is now, man? That was like a long-ass time ago, Nightline and all that. But yes, I know that feeling where you're like, oh, celebrity sighting. How strange. Why are they wearing sweatpants? And that's the part that always makes you feel weird. When, when the guy who's always wearing a three-piece suit or, or in a rock star sense, you know, doing the rock thing, is just wearing a jumpsuit. <laughs> it's such a great idea. Yeah, I mean... Exactly. I mean, I don't know it was her, but I just, it's best to just like assume it was, you know, for my <laughs> life. Anyway. Of course, it, of course it was. Of course it and was. And so then we just leave it in the song, you know, it's like a, a line. I was like, I sort of, I don't really have a third line here. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's the Gray Slick reference, you know, the, all the guys laugh, you know, they're in the band. It's like, you know, that, you know it's, there is a lot of inside jokes. So, I mean, with, with, De with Dennis Herring producing it. Oh, you know what? I want to say something about Dennis Herring, though, actually. So, and you were mentioning Seven Languages. So Seven Languages gets recorded, actually, for the Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart um, sessions because Dennis Herring <laughs> says that's one of the best songs you've ever written. And so we record it for the session, but somehow we're just not hitting it or something. And finally, Dennis says, I'm not going to be the guy that records the bad version of that song. 
<laughs> so we just moved on. <laughs> right? I mean, um, and, and the other thing about how we got signed to a major label is simply because Dennis uh, found us and believed in us. But And he was sort of, he had like really, he basically only produced one other record before that. It was from IRS and it was Timbuk3. And it was their hit record. And he was suddenly in favor with a few record labels. And so he's like, yeah, this is the next project I want to do. And he kind of, he really helped us get signed. Now, there was a, the reason that we, we, you know, we were sort of wary of having a producer come in to produce a record for us. But Dennis is like, looks like a guy whose family owns a feed and seed store <laughs> in two- outside of Tupelo, Mississippi, which they do, and um, or they did, and has somehow ended up as a session guitarist, semi-producer in Hollywood, right? That's the studio cat route, by the way, is coming from Tupelo, and then they make their way to L.A. eventually. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, but he looks like us and dresses like us, and, you know, my dad's from the south and and you know i was all grouping all these air force bases so like i'm much more comfortable when i start getting around well i just sort of get more comf- more like family comfortable around like like southern people or whatever like that and i'm in hollywood and here's this guy we sort of know relate to each other and so i go well this is this is this is a safe bet for us to go into the music business and still retain a lot of control over what we're doing. Now, what we didn't realize that in the studio, Dennis turns out to not be so easygoing. Now, it's not like he's, you know, like Phil Spector. I mean, he's not going to shoot anybody or anything like that. But um, the, the, the gun isn't on the console to, 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 as a warning for you to uh, take this one right or else. Um, no, but I imagine he knows his way around a hunting rifle <laughs> growing up in Mississippi. But um, um, but he turns out to sort of have this really kind of crazy vision, you know, and he's gone on to make what I think are some of, of is probably the most iconic uh, indie, like the final fruition of indie rock, which is the Modest Mouse album that mm-hmm. he produced uh, you know float on and all of that you know that's the summary of everything that came 15 years before that he has this real vision you know i mean he turns out to be like as much of a personality as any of us are and um yeah so we sort of didn't really realize what we were getting into but it turns out to match us pretty well and i think uh, i have to agree with you that one and, and key lime pie are probably um, two very different approaches to recording but uh you know, our, our masterworks, you know, I, I will say this. I also I, don't think the label, let me say this. I also don't think the label knew what they were getting into with mm-hmm. him because he was almost as much of an artist as like, no, we're not changing it. You know, <laughs> than like we were, you know, I don't think, I think people were kind of surprised this was coming from this guy, you know, it's like, he's kind of getting a break, you know, he's like, he's working on his third, record that he's produced or whatever. I mean, I mean but thank God for that because, because uh, okay, for me, the key track on this album, and I, I don't even know, I've never heard you talk about this record or this song. I don't know what you think of it, but I think She Divines Water is one of the best songs the Camper Van Beethoven ever recorded, and it's weird as hell. All right, this is a song that, that absolutely could never get a, you know, a, a break on the radio. It's not commercial at all, but it's beautiful in every conceivable way. It's shiveringly gorgeous. That 
you know, the, the, the Jonathan Segel, you know, violin line, you know, da 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 line that drives it onwards is perfect. And then, of course, it, it just dissolves into this weird edited, you know, messed up tape loop crap at the end of the song and then comes back to, uh, you know, to, re- to recapitulate the actual melody in that song. song is everything that camper van beethoven accidentally tried to be accidentally tried to be and turned out to be like yeah this is a joke and now it's serious and now we're going to do it seriously but we're not going to be too serious about what we do that song is beautiful it is a glory and it is the is the song that i remember with the first time i heard it because that was the first camper album i got i was just blown away by it but of course then there's stuff like devil song you know which you know, has all the the great captain beefheart harmonica on it or as scott said turquoise jewelry is great i mean my path belated that's as close to like a genuine post-punk fire as you ever got greg lights it up with those little small <laughs> detail works it sounds like he's doing the dave gregory you know xtc's guitarist dave gregory kind of doing uh, that kind of- yeah you absolutely nail it with the xtc reference there that's yeah. like greg Greg loves XTC. So yeah, yes, and it shows go. it shows on that. It's just the little, little, little filigrees that just like pop in and out. Not taking the lead, not like trying to like, oh yeah, solo spotlight here, but just like throwing in touches. Oh god, it's so good. And at no point throughout the entire album is any effort made to create a commercial hit single, which I guess is why it didn't sell <laughs> because, you know, all right, you know, there's nothing here that really sells. But my God, people, please get this album. Scott, you know, we all cut you off. Do you have any last thoughts on this one? Um, I, th- I think we covered everything. Um, 
you know, take us to Key Lime. Yeah, man. let's take the Key Lime Pie, which I think was the first. I think Key Lime is actually the first camper record that I had had bought. It had a uh, a pretty uh, relatively big single with the uh, with the status quo cover and, and pictures of matchstick men. There are so many. I, I really enjoy the, the corners of this album. I think Sweethearts is just a great song and uh, and borderline. All her favorite fruit to me points the way forward. I hear a lot of, 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 of what Cracker would do in the future on a song like All Her Favorite Fruit. Lime Pie, the last Camper album, David. W- w- what was the recording like for this? Was was the was the writing on the wall by this point in terms of the, the future of the band? What, what what was the relationship with doing Key Lime Pie? Yeah, I think the writing was well. Actually, let me just say one something really quick about Turquoise Jewelry. Turquoise Jewelry actually was played on the radio in Los Angeles on K Rock, <laughs> and we were like rock stars all of a sudden in L.A., but only in L.A., only because of K-Rock on that album before. You can edit that in if you want to. It was bizarre that they played it. The record company didn't even work that as a single. They just played it. So You mean no payola? It was just like straight up playing? No, because they didn't even work, weren't even working it as a single, so there couldn't have been any payola involved with that, right? It was completely random. And and they played that, and that is, we always have to remember that when we go to L.A., play turquoise jewelry, play turquoise jewelry. Okay. But getting to Key Lime Pie, yeah. Uh, so first, oh, and the last thing I wanted to say about Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart, my <laughs> wife has always regarded She Divines Water as a love song. And I'm like, uh, She Divines Water by wrestling, uh, you know, wrestling a pig. No, for the boys of the press, she'll wrestle a pig. I'm like, how is that a, <laughs> how is that a love song? She goes, I don't know. It's a love song. You know, okay, so you, you, you know, you, you know what she's on to. I'll tell you what she's on to. She's on to the fact that the music is romantic. The music yeah. sometimes belies yeah. the lyrics. Right. Yeah. This is this is a constant, constant fate with camper songs. Yeah. Like sometimes the lyrics are kind of you know you know snarky or, or nonsensical, but the sincerity of that music. There's a power. There's an emotional. Like a romantic touch to that music, and, and blame Jonathan. Maybe this is why he left yeah. before the next album. I don't know, but it was there. And by the way, when you yeah. talk about Keelan Pie, I guess that's the first thing. Like, what happened there? Did you just decide? You know, you guys butted heads heads for too long. You had to take a break. Um, we butted heads a lot in the making of our beloved revolutionary sweetheart, and unfortunately. You know, Dennis kind of got in the middle of it. Dennis was both Jonathan's biggest champion and his harshest critic. So we got to Key Lime Pie, 
And I sort of had this idea to like kind of make this sort of darker, emptier, sparser record. And Dennis got it. And Jonathan was like, I'm not making a record with that dude ever again. And uh, which I kind of understand it. So I was like, hmm. I'm going to make a record with that dude. And I talked to, we, you know, I thought like, you know, in the back of my mind is like, okay, this is the moment where you kind of kick somebody out, but they're not permanently out of the circle and will probably come back. But the band dissolved, I think as the New York, one of the New York weekly said, the band didn't blow up spectacularly, you know, in a giant flame out like Fleetwood Mac. Uh, we sort of dissolved like a urinal cake over a period of a year. That's actually a quote from like one of the weeklies in New York. That's, it's ridiculous, but a perfect in some ways. So Jonathan, yeah, I mean, it was really fundamentally, it became over like how much, oh, and by this point, you know, the record label had sort of been like, oh, that guy, you know, even though I think Dennis probably had butted heads with the record label is like, oh, well, we did get that K-Rock radio play on that crazy song, you know, he produced or whatever like that so the record company was also attached to him and so it just as messy as it was unfortunately the least messiest path to me creatively was like man i had to just go over and talk to jonathan's like i'm i'm making this record i'm making it without you you know and it was a really sad moment you know i mean we cried you know about this but i did it and in retrospect, and you I never spoke really again, regret it in a certain way. But I kind of wish, I, you know, I think a lot of that just if we weren't in our 20s, mm. you know, mm-hmm. there were, pro- you know, we were like a little more mature and we were in 30s, we probably could have worked all that out. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what happens there. Uh, you know, there's a thing about that album that one of the reasons it's it sounds different is I got obsessed with. Uh, uh, the a Sinatra album, and actually, I believe it's the album with September of My Years. Is, is the it, right it, title? Is that where yeah. stuff like all her favorite fruit comes from? You know, the, the, yeah, those, long, those, it, those long, sad ballads mm-hmm. that, that are really beautiful, but but also kind of at this point uncharacteristic. I mean, other than Sad Waltz, I suppose is the first hint of that yeah. in the coming. Yeah. Yeah, there. That's kind of where it comes from, and also, you know, uh, all her favorite fruit is actually taken out of Gravity's Rainbow <laughs> by uh, um, Thomas Pinchon. Yeah, I know. yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, by the way, here's like one of those bizarre, random things. I was sitting one time with talking to my ex-wife's um, grandmother, and I have a copy of a newer Thomas Pinchon book in my hand while I'm talking to her, you know, this is older woman. And she just looks, she goes, Oh, little Tommy pink on. I used to babysit him. (laughs) (laughs) Like a random thing like that. I tried to work that into a song. I never got into it, but anyway, listen, so, so I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent, but the point is, is that, yeah, you know, there's the, like, I sort of imagine some of those songs, you know, the Thomas Pynchon books, they have these, you know, he breaks into lyrics and stuff like that. And, you know, people break into song in, his book, in some of his books and stuff like that, especially The Crying of Lot 49. There's the Paranoids and they sing songs and also in Gravity's Rainbow. So I took two of the characters from Gravity's Rainbow and I made their love song that should have been in the book, but it wasn't in the book. That's what that is. Scott? 
Were you surprised the album didn't take off? I mean, were you surprised there were? I mean, look at songs like you know, uh, 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 "Born on a Laundromat" or, or even "When I Win the Lottery." There's some possible, you know, things radio stations might pick up, might play. Um, again, I think, I think you know, like, like "Borderline" could have been could have been a song. To the release and, and the reception to the, to to uh, Key Lime Pie. Well, Key Lime Pie actually is, in retrospect, it's, it's sort of when people write about it, it gets pretty good reviews. But the reviews when it came out were pretty mixed. A lot of people didn't really understand it. I think I can't remember if it's Spin or Rolling Stone, one of those compilations of reviews of albums when they come out. Mm-hmm. It's actually a different one than the, the original review. They replaced it with a nicer review. Um, <laughs> I'm serious. That's either one of those two c- compilations of reviews that yeah. are out there has an edited review that's nicer. Um, which, I mean, I suppose they probably did that with a lot of books, and I actually understand why. Mm-hmm. Probably the best thing that happened to Camper Van Beethoven with that album, Key Lime Pie, is that we broke up. And um, it sort of gave that album some gravity mm-hmm. um, from us. It sort of gave us some more, or it made the gravity that that album had, it sort of put it into context or something like that. I don't know. It made it more palatable to the public. It's the strange ways here we come of the Camper Van Beethoven discography. It's like that final statement before everybody goes their own separate ways, except this one had a a somewhat happier ending, thankfully. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I... that's a good one. I take that as a compliment. That's exact. And so, yeah. So, like the fact that we broke up on that album sort of led a lot of people to sort of like reevaluate that and look at that over the years. And you, you know, because sort of the the vibe on it from from a lot of people were like, well, you know, this is it's all fine that Camper made like this serious record, but that's not why we, you know, that's that's not what they do, you know. So it's kind of a weird one to end on. Um, did you who mentioned talk talk earlier? That was Jeff. That's a Jeff yeah. favorite. Yeah, that, that I'm an, I'm obsessed with them. So, <laughs> yeah. so they sort of do an album that's not like them at the end, don't they? Isn't that? Oh yeah, yeah. But Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock—they're just mm-hmm. like drifting further away from the shore and like out into the ocean, the deep, yeah. deep ocean. Yeah, but I think there's something to that when a band does that. Like, there's a there's probably a fair number of albums that. Um, at the time they come out, they're not not really understood, and then sort of years 
later. I don't know. It's not like really understood, but they're they're better as they're better if you can get a little time on them, so mm -hmm. you can understand the greater context of everything else that's going on. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, for, yeah. It, for me, I, I hear direct connections from this to Cracker. You know, from, yeah. from the songwriting on this, I, I think of songs like you know Jack Ruby, which is you know a great song. It's yeah. a shame you had to name it after the guy who shot the guy who shot Kennedy, uh, so that was never going to get played on the radio. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, good, good song, really good song. But, you know, and then there's songs like June and all her favorite fruit. The, the songwriting, there's, there's, I, I don't want to say straightening out because there's nothing that in Cracker is ever going to be completely straight. It's always going to be a little bit weird and off kilter. But like, yeah, so the band dissolves in Scandinavia, I think. It's like in Sweden of all places or something. Sweden's ball. Sweden's <laughs> ball. We got too close to the Arctic Circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's just, you know, people freeze to death. Their bands don't make it out of there either. And yeah, then all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. Try touring Northern Europe in basically February and March, you know. I mean, there's a reason that those countries have high suicide rates. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but it's, there's something just dark about it. That's why those Bergman films are like that, you know? They're all, they're all in black and white and about, like, death, immortality, uh, the, the future life, and or the dissolution of love, which brings yeah. us in, in, in no necessarily predictable way to Cracker, this is right. Scott's big jam. I mean, this is okay. So, you know, the band dissolves, and you're like, all right, well, I, I got to get on with my life. And, and then you go back, you find your old friend from, from SoCal, from the Inland Empire, uh, Jonathan Hickman. And you just say, you know what? We're going to hole up in uh, a house in Richmond, I believe. And mm -hmm. we're going to demo some songs. And you, I believe, send it to Virgin. And Virgin's like, all right, well, you know what? Camper Van Beethoven is over, but we're still in the David Lowry business. So we will uh, let you come out with this. And boy, did that ever shock the world. The change in style, the change in mood, the change in commercial success. And this is the point where Scott has been <laughs> champing at the bit to take over. Scott, go. So this this uh, debut, Teen Angst gets a lot of play at, at, uh, around college radio. It's number one, actually, I think, on the modern rock tracks. You and Johnny get together and, and write these songs, and, and, and uh, I think Cracker Soul is one of the first ones, and everything starts to come together. Do you, do you have an idea to get, to get completely away from what Camper was? Uh, I mean, certainly, you guys both have a deep love of, I mean, country music, and that would come out in, in, in a lot of albums and songs in the future. Was that is that kind of the the, the plan to just blend a few different styles in, in this new band? 
Yeah, you know, there, there's the methodology. I think I've said this before, so I don't want to bore you, but I think the methodology of Camper Van Beethoven is present in Cracker, which is you kind of just take a little of this and you take a little of that. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of put it together and see what works and stuff like that. You take a little from this style and this is a little from this style and you get so there's a lot of hybridization going on in it. That same methodology is there, but it's really sort of self-consciously Johnny and I kind of narrowed it from what Camper did. And we narrowed it to American kind of roots and blues music, right? And kind of Southern rock as translated by English blues guitarists, you know, and rock guitarists like the Kinks, the Stones, you know. Um, but it's a, it's the same methodology. It's narrower. We're trying to play kind of more what we're really just kind of culturally immersed in and we also grew up in this area of eastern the far eastern extreme of the los angeles suburbs mm-hmm. used to ask it would be a separate area a ranching and orchard area much m- much like the central valley when we were growing up and you know country music was a big deal there i had you know one of the you know the clicks at my high school was the cowboy click you know <laughs> <laughs> real cowboys right and uh, so Johnny and I would spend a lot of time commuting back and forth to L.A. to see punk rock shows and post-punk shows and, you know, cool British bands and stuff like that with, you know, the punk rock kids. But invariably, they, you know, a lot of times it'd be like late at night and we'd be the ones awake and driving back and we would put on the Bakersfield stuff. Like mm. both of us were into the Bakersfield stuff and uh, or Dwight Yoakam or something like. I don't know, something that just leaned way more roots and stuff like that. And when Camper broke up, I it was really, at that point, I was really sort of diving into sort of all this American sort of, you know, folk and blues, almost like, you know, classic rock too as well. And like the only guy I knew that sort of was in the Camper world that really like, you know, sort of in our circle of friends that, kind of could play that really authentically and with heart and passion was Johnny Hickman. So, I mean, he was literally the, once I realized that the band was not getting to get back together after taking three weeks (laughs) wandering around in Morocco, this long story, I get back to London and I call him. I was like, Hey, you want to be in a try, maybe try to start a band together. So it was Johnny. And it was specifically because of sort of his, knowledge and fluency and just sort of authenticity when he played that stuff on guitar yeah his, his so that there's a big change and kind of not a big change we're still using the same methodology but we're drawing on the other this and that that we're drawing on i want to talk a, a second about teen angst which i think most people probably have heard most people know it was again a big hit uh on college radio modern rock I, I love every piece of that song, you know, from Johnny's guitar to the structure of the song to um, what is apparent in, in a number of your songs, which is it's not exactly what it seems on the surface. And I think you said at one point, uh, the third verse tells the truth, right? It's, it's, it's a country style of songwriting. You set things up and then there's a little there's a little twist at the end. You know, teen angst, uh, you know, what the world needs now is another folk singer like I need a hole in the head. You're, it's not bashing of folk music or folk singers. It's just saying, I got to get a, I, I got to find a way to get this girl into bed, right? And folk is exactly. not going to do it. And that's what the song is about. <laughs> that's why I love it so much. 
I mean, yeah, it takes three verses to get there. It is a technique that you find in country music that oftentimes is just misdirect in the first two verses. I don't know what the style of song was called, but Green Green Grass of Home is one of them, although that's a terrible, read, a beautiful, terrible and beautiful misdirect. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know what that style is called, but that's exactly what we're playing with. And um, I call, I call, You know what I do? I call it the O. Henry style of music. <laughs> uh, there we go. Okay. Because yeah. it's like it, you know, the, the short story writer who is like every ending, all of them, you know, just, you know, the gift of the Magi for those, you know, who, who want to go Wikipedia and everything has a twist at the end and that you, you got it. You got to stick with it. And then when you get to the end, it's there. And yes, that's exactly what the country style is. Right. So that album is, a, and, and just to go back to us getting picked up for that album, that album is a, it's a mixture of some kind of punky elements, some what was called modern rock then elements. I think it was just beginning to be called alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, like a lot of what we would now call Americana. And it's a mix kind of all three of those things. And I will say this, there's, there's a moment where I meet with Mark Williams, who is our A&R person at Virgin Records and you know, was our champion at Virgin Records. We, we turned in that album to him and he says, well, I like this album, but you know, it's basically a country rock album when the biggest rock albums out there are grunge. You know, so if you're happy with us just kind of putting this out and just selling the same as the camp records, you know, um, I'll do it. I'll take a chance on it. You know, I like this record. But it was kind of a like a like you better know what you're getting into here, <laughs> like kind of thing, right? And um, lo and behold, it was it worked though. I mean, it was it was fine. It, although it I, sold it sold like more than two times as many copies as Key Lime Pie. Yeah. At least, I mean, it came. It might actually technically be gold now. Is a problem with having two different catalog numbers on it because Virgin gets sold while that album's out. Mm. Um, it might technically be gold. If it wasn't gold, it got fairly close to it, and it certainly got played a lot on the radio and still gets played a lot on the radio there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of fan favorites i mean a lot of these songs end up on on, on set lists from oh i saw you do dr bernice live once which was fantastic or can i take my gun up to heaven mr wrong yes. johnny gets to sing I, I always point i see the light to me is like the first time that you see exactly what Johnny is going to bring to the band. You know, that, 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 that kind of stumbling riff, the and that the huge, great solo he has in that song. Um, you know, I, I see the light as, is, I think, an encore song a lot for you, too. But that, that, that's the first song we're like, oh, that, this is what Johnny's going to do. This is how he's, you know, and his tone is so distinctive, too. You always know when Johnny's playing that his tone is so distinctive. 
Yeah, it's in his hands. It doesn't have anything to do with his guitar. I don't, I don't know what it is. You can give him any kind of guitar, and it sounds like that, you know? You can give him, like, a toy guitar, basically, and it sounds like that. I don't know what the deal is. Yeah, and um, yes, and that's his thing, writing these evocative riffs, uh, these signature riffs that are sort of like, it's sort of like the counterpoint to what I say, mm -hmm. like real right. classic formula between, you know, a lead guitarist and a singer is he has a signature riff that he plays against what I'm singing, and uh it works and yes and specifically i see the light because then we get you know sort of the southern rock sort of gospel rock backing vocals on there i mean that was the controversial part among some of my friends because they're like going dude that is completely southern rock you can't do southern rock. <laughs> yes we can and we're gonna do it you know i mean there was a lot of uh it was weirdly controversial to do that at that moment in the music business sort of coming out of college radio and stuff like that but at the, in the same way that camper the, the, sad, was, the sad thing is that you weren't obscure enough to be part of the no depression movement right. because you could have done it if you were there You're like oh yeah we're just another group of like uncle tupelo or like yeah, you know old 97s or like you know whiskey town but no 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 you you have this all this backstory that people are like, okay, now you're doing this, and, and you can't you can't fade back into that willful obscurity where people will treat it as something authentic anymore. Yeah, exactly. So, so we didn't really get sort of identified with the no depression movement until much much later. Even though I think those first two Cracker albums are like right down the middle of that, yeah. you know. Uh, um, but yeah, it's. It's pretty interesting. And, you know, we're, we're also being kind of marketed and promoted by a very sophisticated entertainment conglomerate, you know, uh, you know, EMI uh, Virgin at that point. And, you know, there, there's sort of a pathway that you take to get on certain kinds of radio stations and stuff like that. And so that so, you know, a lot of what they end up doing is they're like almost pushing the roots tracks into the closet, you know, <laughs> so that they can get to the things like low and, and, you know, teen angst that kind of fit more in the modern rock world. Right. Yep. 
And, and, and move forward to the second album, which you, you know, is Kerosene Hat. This is the one with Low, the, that that great old Tom Petty song that you guys. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> In the old days of the internet, the uh, when people were stealing files, uh, copies of Low were often labeled as being t- Tom Petty, and so people are still confused by that. I think to this day, if you have a you know stolen, ripped version of of, of Low that you may have gotten via Napster or someplace a long time ago, but look, this is the smash. This one sells. This one probably, you know, recoups your virgin debt and pays the bills for a while. I, w- I want to s- specifically talk about Get Off This, because you're, you've got a song um, criticizing those who would call you sellouts before really selling out. Meaning, I mean, I, I know the first album sold, what, 200,000 copies when it first came out and, and more. Yeah. But this is, I mean, Get Off This is on the album before Low becomes this smash hit that would still be played on classic rock radio to this day. And, you know, we don't get no government loans. No one sends, sends us checks from homes. Get this. We're doing what we want to. And I guess I want to fold in here, you know, in getting down the road a bit, you know, Wonder Flower Power Maximum, that got sold to, I think, Intel. Uh, the World is Mine got sold to Gillette. And so not just low and not just people buying records, but people who want to use your music and are willing to pay you for it. That's not a bad thing, and that's what I always get from Get Off This. It's like, this is our job. This is our life. Of course we want to make money off this stuff. Pete yep. Townsend always says that he doesn't mind when the Who songs get played on, like, car commercials. And it, I'll, I will point out that it does bother me when, you know, you know I, I hear <laughs> Bargain, a song written about the divinity of God to sell a Honda <laughs> Civic. Um, but he says, listen, you know, I, I want these songs to be heard by people. And people watch television. That's a great way to get that music out there. They're going to hear it. And I'm fine with that. I'm proud of that. And you know what? It also helps you make money from that. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with making money. I've never prob. I've never, you know, look at me. I mean, look at where we are. I'm, I'm no hippie. You know, I got some hippie ideals, but I don't mind that. So I've never had a problem with that stuff being sold as long as the artists haven't had their catalogs stolen by like greedy grifters who sign them to crap contracts. Like, <laughs> um, you know, you know, like, you know, like, like the way that like, you know, Michael Jackson bought the Beatles catalog and then sold it to Sony. And so now you hear all you need is love to sell shoes. That kind of stuff is not good. But like if you want to just put your song on a commercial, that's actually I, I I don't know. I'm just I, I'm usually you know down with I'm down with the revolution in most things when it comes to music. I'm, I have no problem with this. Never have. Yeah. Well, and that is true. One of the things I think the College Music Journal. I think there was a letter maybe from. Let's say it was Gerard Cosloy, one of the indie label owners who was actually, I think it was him, I'll have to fact check this, but a college music journal, certainly a college music journal, I remember there was a letter about our first album, because not only was Teenix so different than Camper Van Beethoven, but it was uh, in a Coors commercial, I believe. Hmm. (laughs) Right? And me and Johnny, um, I don't know if it's just kind of we are from... You know, you're, my father was an enlisted man in the military. Um, you know, my sister was one of the first people to go to college out of my extended family. Um, the Or graduate from college out of my extended family. Uh, the Inland Empire is definitely, uh, that part of California is definitely like sort of a lower demo. Um, and to us, that whole thing about 
selling out, the way me and Johnny viewed it was, well, that's just like the not selling out. That's just these idiots like trying to hold us back, <laughs> right? Petty little lie, you told us come around the judge and stone. Yeah, all we're trying to do is make a fortune. Yeah, we ain't got no government loans and no one sends a check from home. We'll get this. We're just doing what we wanna. So let's get on this. I'll get on with it. absolutely defiant about that it was like so what you know if we want to put the song in a beer commercial uh, i don't think it's like really hurting the song in this case now there's other places where maybe i would change my mind on that but in general we leaned way more pro licensing because we just it was just like this is like a social pressure that's keeping us from getting paid right, right? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to us it, I mean, I suppose if it was some product that I really don't like or, you know, you know, nowadays I might feel a little differently about being it, you know, necessarily being in a beer commercial because I'm sober and stuff like that. But I don't know. Back then, we just felt it was like people who had no business telling us what to do, telling us what to do. And. So that kind of comes out and get off this. That's specifically what we're talking about. It's like we're kind of making fun of it. You know, we're like that people like uh, you sold out or something like that from the first record. We were like, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't know how much I sold my soul for. Here's a quarter. Call my account. You know, it's like <laughs> it's completely. And again, we're kind of trolling people and our fans again. There wasn't a word for it back then, but we knew what we were doing when we were doing this. So here's my, 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 my shameful confession. Which is that um, when we first hinted to the people we follow on Twitter that we we're going to be doing, you know, Camperman, Beethoven, Cracker, people were DMing me. It's like, oh man, Kerosene Hat, that was my jam in nineteen, you know, the early nineties. Man, I love that album. And I'm not, I'm not going to lie. When I was a young, snot-nosed, Beatle-loving punk, you know, only time for classic rock, I did not like Low. I still don't particularly care for it. It's, it's a decently written song. It's really funny to watch that video. And, and, and boy, you know, you are a spindly looking dude in that video, boxing with Sandra Bernhard. Uh, She's she, spindly in her own way. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah a, be- a beautiful woman who I think could, at that time at least, could have beaten the crap out of you because she yeah. seemed to be a lot taller. Um, but I do love a lot of the songs on this record. I, I, I get off this, uh, Scott already mentioned, Kerosene Hat, that title track. I really like that because that's some, like, some weird, disturbing, uh, I guess, I don't know how to put this. This is some basically white trash imagery. Um, but the thing I really like on this, and, and I don't want this to sound like a backhanded compliment because it's the cover. I really like that version of Loser. Um, I'm a big deadhead. 
I, I, there's no way you would have known that, but I'm, I'm an enormous deadhead and I have no idea where you got the idea to cover this, you know, dead classic. Although actually it only ever turned up on a Jerry Garcia solo album, but like, it just like shows up at the end of the album fades in and, you know, you know, just, you know, about a, a three time loser. Um, and it is the most wonderful dead end song. Uh, I think that uh, Hunter ever wrote, Robert Hunter. I love that take on it, and that's the only good cover of it, I think, that has ever been done outside of the dead. Last bad deal in the country The thing that actually I'm most intrigued about when it comes to kerosene hat is that this is when you broke big and then you were like identified with like the alt rock scene. Of course, ironically, in the 80s, the alt rock scene meant one thing. And then in the 90s, it, after grunge, after Pearl Jam and Nirvana, it meant a completely different thing. How weird did it feel to be part of the new you know, gr- post grunge alt rock scene, despite the fact that you'd already been at this for, you know, at least a decade. I mean, it must have been bizarre as hell. Yeah. I mean, I, we were, we were getting pretty good crowds with Camper Van Beethoven in places like San Francisco, LA, Seattle embraced us early on. There's a few other places in like that. But yeah, I, I guess it kind of dawned on me. I lived in this little town outside of Richmond, out in the country. And this place called Ayla. And actually, I lived in a smaller village outside of that, right? And <laughs> it dawned on me what was going on was when the local high school kids started parking at the end of our long dirt driveway at the gate and basically smoking pot and drinking beer. <laughs> and <laughs> blasting that song and other songs. Sometimes I don't walk the street behind a green sheet of glass. A million miles below their feet. A million miles, a million miles.
days, right? I was like, oh, shit, I'm gonna have to move, right? <laughs> I never thought I'd be like dealing with anything like this. Turned like it turned out I didn't. It was a great place to live. Um, if you were gonna be an alternative rock to start, because you know nobody could find you basically except for the local kids, and they were mostly pretty good. But like that was that was that was crazy to me, right? And and we also happened to go on this package tour with the Spin Doctors and the Gin Blossoms and Cracker that was probably booked like almost a year in advance. And all of us kind of broke big in the meantime. So that tour, I mean, I remember we played in Chicago. We played for like 40,000 people for those three <laughs> bands. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, we would go on tours in Camper Van Beethoven. We were like, well, if we can gross $40,000 for the month, we can, you know, we can all pay our rent, you know, or whatever like that, right? We were grossing $40,000. I know, I mean, it'd be crass, but you have to understand, like, this is the things that are happening. We were grossing $40,000 a night in merch. Hmm. And it was just like, it was just like, you know, this is the thing about show business and entertainment is, you know, it's like the sort of winner take all business. And we were a winner all of a sudden. And there were just like zeros added to everything. <laughs> and it was like, we kind of weren't really prepared for that in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways we were, but, um, yeah, that was, that was a, a crazy time. I mean, um, I'll never, I didn't really understand it when it was going on and looking back on it, I don't really understand it <laughs> looking back on it either. It's just like, it was, it was crazy. So, and, and to me though, having kids park at the end of your driveway, drinking beer and smoking pot, I know I'm not supposed to encourage that or anything like that, high school kids, but that is actually, that's actually the main signifier that we were really, that in high school would like, you know, go out in the orchards and we would do that and we'd listen to like the, you know, the talking heads new album or something like that, you know, maybe it wasn't talking heads, probably more like Led Zeppelin or something like that in high school. But yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? The, the golden age is the next album. And, um, what always strikes me about this album, which I, I do love, is, is this extreme loud and soft dynamic between, you know, you, on one side, you stack up, I hate my generation, nothing to believe in, 100 flower power maximum. And the other side, you've got, you know, Big Dipper and Dixie Babylon, Bicycle Spaniard. You know, if you want your music very loud and aggressive, you got that half of the album. If you want your music kind of soft and, 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 and beautiful, you have that half. But I know this was the one album in which Version probably threw you a blank check and said you sold a bunch of kerosene hat, do what you want to do. What kind of things were you able to do while recording the Golden Age that you could never do again? Well, brought Dennis Herring back because I wanted to do the string sections we never really could do on mm -hmm. Key Lime Pie. <laughs> right? And... And also, too, just it was sort of time to work with Dennis again. And, um, you know, he was kind of like this sixth member of Camper Van Beethoven. It was kind of cool to bring him back, mm -hmm. bring some of that energy back into the into our band. Um, and, of course, him being a session musician, the great the, – here's the great uh, uh, thing about that album – is the string sections are actually conducted by Bex. And it's, it's, the string sections are 
can arranged those arrangements are created and conducted by Beck's father. Hmm. Um, um, the artist Beck, right. his father right. is a string arranger, and I think a really great unsung hero. And pause for a second while I try to remember. It's, it's why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Hanson, right? Beck, Beck Han- yeah. yeah, yeah, Mr. Beck. I like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Mr. Beck, could you bring strings on a record? <laughs> you know, um, uh, well, actually, no, 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 no. It's David Campbell, isn't it? God, I'm such an idiot. Yeah, David Campbell. Yeah. If you look at his discography, it's kind of crazy, sort of crazy he's not more famous anyway um i wanted to work keel and pie wanted to have like a real string arranger and stuff like that we couldn't afford it so when we get to golden age i'm like let's who's the guy that's going to understand this and dennis is like david campbell <laughs> so we did it and i think that's a lot of the character of things like uh gold the song golden age yeah. somewhere i failed somewhere i lost you Shiny things I can't remember This is the golden age This is the golden age Rocket ship. Yeah, rocket ship. Rocket ship is is mad professor stuff. <laughs> I mean, that is crazy mad professor stuff. And yes, we had the money to do that then. You know, we had the money to make a. We were on tour, and the record label decided they wanted to do um, um, nothing to believe in as a as a single. We were on tour. We couldn't interrupt our tour schedule, so they just hired Harry Dean Stanton to be right. in a video. You know. <laughs> You know, that was like big time stuff, but it's it's kind of cool, you know, like there's there's sort of there's this stuff where you spend a lot of money on a record and it sort of doesn't add anything to it, but just kind of make it glossier and slicker. And then there's something, you know, if you if you I feel like we did a good job of spending all that money and making the whole thing like bigger, better and sort of more grandiose in a way that really helped the band. Uh, I don't want to give the album short shrift, but we, we want to make sure we hit everything we want to hit before we yeah, our, our yeah, time so. runs out. Gentlemen's Blues in, in, in 1998. I, I, I just love this album, and I know Jeff does too. Um, Congratulations. This is, I, I would never have thought it before, I never heard it before Scott pushed it on me desperately. This is the best Cracker album. <laughs> this is a fantastic album. Where the hell did this album come from? James River? I could talk the entire show about James River. My God. All right, I'm going to shut up. This is a fantastic record, though. Yeah, and I always feel like this is a record for the fans. Uh, there are so many lyrics and so many twists in here that are they're either self-referential, uh, you know, in Seven Days especially, um, in uh, My Life is Totally Boring, you know, started a band, went somewhere near the top, 
uh, there's references to band members and managers and and bugs and you know, your, your tech and and Kenny Margolis is on board. So there's more keys, there's more accordion, there's more of not a kitchen sink field, but man, it's like every possible uh, every possible way you could show what Cracker was capable of at this time is somewhere in this album. So we were standing like the last rock band on the planet. Of vapor trails and alpine skies It's our green fields and yellow flowers And brown liquor, a brown liquor The bugs got a job in the Catskills Some Fraulein along the way Took her home But then she had An episode Though it did disturb him He was strangely compelled And even the, the bonus hidden track, which I certainly hope Jeff listened to, Cinderella, which you wrote and then LP'd vocals on, who's gone on to a uh, nice career. And, and that, that's such a killer song. That's buried as a bonus track. Start to finish, and especially you know the first five, six songs, the, the, the rhythm, the pacing, the sequencing is just fantastic. Uh, Gentlemen's Blues, this is 20 years here, so playing some of these songs again on tour this year. What do you take from that experience of the album? Well, um, I probably like Jeff here. I feel like this is probably the best Cracker record. I don't know if it's the place to start, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's the the best record. I think me and Johnny really have our formula and our sort of groove on, and we're we actually have figured out sort of the original concept of the band, which is like a band is usually kind of, they have you two main songwriters and then there's sort of the people who play with you live. And then there's sort of this third circle of friends who jam with you, acquaintances, other artists and stuff like that. We actually have the logistics and the dynamics of that working (laughs) by this point. So that's why there's so many people on that record, but it's like managed really well. It's not a mess, right? Like, you know, you do have like, you have, you, you have like Steve Jordan, Charlie Drayton sometimes being the rhythm section. Yeah. You have Mike Campbell on the record in places playing cello. You have Ben Montench from the Heartbakers playing keyboards on it. You also have Kenny playing keyboards. You, you, and it's just kind of, it's this kind of almost like a messed away. I, I don't know. Um, I don't want to say the Stones. Maybe the band did stuff. Um, but I, I feel like we sort of know really well who we are at that point. Mm-hmm. And we sort of take a step back to just being a little more of like recording audio, whereas the album before that wasn't. And when I kind of demoed the songs or demoed them, I just, it was Don Smith who recorded that record. He goes, why don't we just go and record where the band recorded you know if you're into that stuff let's just go do it let's just go live it this is like 
kind of method acted this whole thing. <laughs> so, so we went to moved, Woodstock. You, guys moved, you moved into Sammy Davis Jr.'s pool house in Los Angeles? Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, right. Well, we went up to we went to one of the places. We went up to um, yeah, Sammy Davis. That would be awesome, actually. So um, <laughs> I mean, man, <laughs> hey, actually, if you can get that Brown album feel, you go for it. I, I can completely understand. Yeah. I got a story about Frank Sinatra's one of his houses actually looking at that, pretending to be interested in buying it from Palm Springs <laughs> so that I could look at it. <laughs> but anyway, um, let me get sidetracked. We went to Woodstock and, and we recorded at Bearsville, right? So, and, and we just stayed up there and, you know, that record was kind of half written. We wrote a lot of it in the studio. We brought people in and out and then we went to Richmond and brought people in and out. And then we went to Don Smith's house out in the far extremes of the Valley. And he had this little kind of carriage house studio there. And we brought people in and we worked on it and, Man, you know, it was kind of all over the place how, how we made that album. But, you know, we, we maybe we thought it was our, I don't know what album it could be. Let me not even get into that. But, yeah, and that's why we played it 20 years later as we go. This is actually the fan favorite. Mm-hmm. It didn't, it, we commercially dropped off the charts with that album. It's the album that really leads to us getting dropped from Virgin Records because it's just too rock when they were like putting out things like the Spice Girls and Electronica, <laughs> you know? It's or, like, or Limp Bizkit. Wish we had read the politics. Yeah, where we, I wish we'd read the politics better on that one. But, um, <laughs> we could have held that out till 2002. But, uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, so here's the point where things get incredibly weird. So... You know, you guys take a small hiatus, and uh, then uh, Camper Van Beethoven reforms in secret, and you don't tell anyone, and you just feed us a bunch of BS. I am not going to lie. I am genuinely resentful of the fact that for years I bought the bullshit lie that Camper Van Beethoven is dead, long live Camper Van Beethoven was a Rarities Outtakes album and now you already talked earlier about how like you wish you had had horns on Key Lime Pie well all of our favorite fruit uh, uh, with, with, with all the strings and all that rather um, yeah, now I understand why that is what it is. <laughs> that entire album was assembled and released and sold as a Rarities album guess what folks, it's completely new it is a new camper van beethoven album they just didn't want you to know it probably because it was sequenced as a bunch of rarities Even later beyond that, we'll just you know skip ahead because there's a, there's a, an intervening cracker release here. But Tusk, <laughs> you know, uh, you talked about Fleetwood Mac earlier. I you know, I almost feel like this is like 
I, I've never, I've never quite figured that. It felt like it was an album that was recorded on a dare. I was talking about how eclectic Camper Van Beethoven is, so eclectic that, like, I feel like somebody would have just sat around Stone and said, "Them, yeah, yeah, you, you guys think you're all, you're all hot and all that, but you know what? You know, I'll bet you, I'll bet you that you won't record a track for track, twenty song remake <laughs> of Fleetwood Mac's 1979 Quixotic double album Tusk, and that you and Jonathan and Greg just and sat around and looked at each other and said, "Well, you know what? Get back to us. We'll see." And so I don't know why the first two Camper Van Beethoven reunion albums were released under false pretenses. You <laughs> completely lied with us. And in fact, you can search on the internet. You have to search hard. You have to be a sleuth to figure out that these are not, in fact, archival releases, but are absolutely 100% new releases. Why? Why did you do this? Well, getting back to the fact that the Camper Van Beethoven is something a little, our brand is, hate that word, is a little beyond just the music right and having a reunion album was just literally too much pressure for us <laughs> in some way <laughs> and at the same time we could just have a lot of fun trolling the entire music business with one a fake i mean we trolled the entire music business with a fake reunion album. And there's Dude, something if you, about go, that if, you, if you go to all music or Amazon or whatever, they still think it's an, an authentic archive. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, and there's something that is completely on message and on brand with that, that I feel like we had to do, despite the fact that I know there are people out there like you, Jeff, who were, fooled by this whole thing and we probably owe you an apology <laughs> but um you know not to get all silicon valley on you here but you know maybe it's better to ask forgiveness than permission here you know or something with this but it is after all only a reunion record by an obscure <laughs> 80 eclectic band that was kind of known for doing this kind of stuff. So you probably should have known that we might do something like this. You worked now, so hard on, the, on that, that, that camper Van Beethoven is dead album. You worked so hard to fool people. You put in fake applause, you crossfaded, man. And then, then, then what was the press release? Like, Oh, we know we're sampling ourselves. We know we're mixing it all together. Cause like, yeah, it's the modern aesthetic. You liars. I love it. Yeah. It's so wonderful. It's such a beautiful <laughs> imposture. But like it's like it's 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 one of my favorite musical frauds ever perpetrated. Oh uh, well well thank you. You know, we actually ran some of this by our lawyer first, especially when we get to the we got away with it once, right? And then we get to Tusk and we ran this by our lawyer. And uh, um, you know, first of all we had to sort of make sure we weren't recording an album in some total there's there's compulsory law. There's exceptions to copyright law where you get to cover people's songs once they come out, mm -hmm. but you're not really supposed to totally totally change them. So we did fire a letter off to management for Fleetwood Mac and said, explain to what we were doing, and uh, they didn't answer us. So we took that as tacit permission, <laughs> right? And then later, Lindsey Buckingham says says that it's okay. And there was also a big debate about that album cover. Right, mm -hmm. because we basically 
We do. You, had a, you, you have a jackalope on the cover, right? <laughs> yeah, we take the Tusk album cover. We replace the dog with a jackalope. Victor restaged the whole thing perfectly because at this point, Victor's working as art director, assistant art director at Wired magazine, right? So I assume. I assume that artwork actually was done on Wired, was done on Condé Nast's dime. But um, uh, we, you know, we had to like sort of walk the line with this because we're essentially, I mean, if you see that album next to, I have seen it before in with Fleetwood Mac albums. (laughs) I'm not sure if that's our fans doing that, but you might buy that album with a likelihood of confusion, uh, you know, which would be referencing the law on, on trademark. Yeah, and, wait, and, and wait till they get to Sarah. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> well, nobody wanted when, to see when that. They hear, when they hear the killing joke version of Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, but Lee, Fleetwood Mac had a good sense of humor about it. Um, and I guess because he, <laughs> Lindsey Buckingham later in an interview says he knows about the album and we took liberties with it and he liked it. <laughs> so I guess we got away with it. But that also, when we put out that album, we told everybody that it we had lost, we had done yes, that when Chris yes. Peterson broke his arm in a ill-advised homemade toboggan accident um, <laughs> while skiing in the Sierras in California. And so we had just, we were going to do a songwriting session. Instead, we recorded Fleetwood Mac's Tusk on a four track and all, and Chris couldn't play drums. So we used a drumulator, <laughs> an old drum machine, which weirdly there's a, Chris actually did the, played the drums for the sampling sessions for the drumulator. So there's a real fact in there. And those were, not camper drums, but it was at least him hitting the drums. Yeah. Hey, by the way, why Tusk, of all things? Why that album? Is there, were you drawn to it for some particular reason? Well, uh, Jonathan Sagal, who always argued that that's the brilliant Fleetwood Mac record, and it's the what artists should do, which is be completely excessive and go bankrupt, I guess. And <laughs> <laughs> do lots of drugs. I'm not really sure. But his yeah, argument yeah. was like, that's what rock stars do. You know what I mean? You know what? That's what artists do is they make albums like Tusk that are kind of all over the place. They're a disaster and they don't give a shit what people think, right? <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> right? That's a great album. So like it was like I love that album originally and the remake, I was just like as soon as over and over starts clanking in, I'm like, all right. All right. And then I hear like the, the utterly perverse way you guys handle the Stevie Nicks songs for the most part. I'm like, you know, nobody in Camper Van Beethoven can sing like a woman. So this is always destined to end in tears. But I really, really do. And I love, I love like storms. You do a good job of storms. I would never have thought that, I, you know, you guys doing that would work, but it does. So I try to say.
it's like a really entertaining, like random thing. And yet, released as a curio to take the pressure off. Now, in the meantime, there is a cracker release. I don't want to, you know, you know, I don't want to step on Scott here, but that is a pretty good album. I, I want to talk about, you know, countrysides and forever. Yeah, uh, well, while Jeff is geeking out on Tusk and waiting and, and the uh, camper van Beethoven is dead, I'm patiently waiting for the release of Forever, which is stoked because the band is slowly releasing demos and releasing, not outtakes, well, there were, there were a couple outtakes that would eventually end up on Greenland that were released around that time, uh, through, the, through the website, through the, through the Cracker website. So I have all these Forever demos at home. This album, to me, feels like the most camper van beethoven cracker album right the wordplay the the distinctness i think some of these songs wouldn't fit on any other cracker album um you know ain't that strange in miss santa cruz county back to back it's just something to behold the blue ladies rode their bikes what they were we assumed rhymed with bikes but then one day one did not get out of bed She was dead and a guy That's what the paramedics said So let's all be someone else I'm tired of being myself So let's all be someone else Let's all be someone else Mark Linkus um, producing Brides of Neptune, which is a fantastic song. This is a great album. But I, I, what I want to ask about is, is, is actually the first part of my statement, which is the Internet and websites. And how has that changed the way that you've been able to reach and touch your fans? Have, has Cracker and Camper been able to live longer because of the directness with which you can reach out and talk to people and offer them tracks and say, here's the, the campouts coming up and all this stuff. Right. Yeah. So all those albums, including the Tusk and the, and the Camper Van Beethoven are fake records or fake oddities records <laughs> are, it's really important that you understand that the internet is becoming mainstream at that point. Right. Because we couldn't have trolled everybody if we didn't have that direct communication right. to our fans with those two camper van Beethoven records. And also as we're recording that cracker album during that time period, I mean, there was kind of not really a way to do essentially like market research on own, your own songs that you're writing. Mm -hmm. Right. So we could kind of leak these out without pissing off our record label <laughs> and kind of get reactions from our fans about these things. So it's almost like we were developing this product, you know, like it was, <laughs> it was super bizarre because we go, oh, people, kinda, oh, people don't like that. It's like we either have to go, well, they're going to get used to it, you know, <laughs> or either we go, I think they're right. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like so modern how we sort of developed it, like sort of, you know, we didn't want to put it totally out there, so it became their like pirated copies got out there. But those fans who'd figured out how we were leaking it, and they were, and it was like deeply hidden. This stuff was there would be a link yeah. in a pixel in a picture, 
you know, stuff like that, or there would be clues. Um, so it's really important that we do have this bigger body of fans that we can reach out to kind of directly and sort of almost sort of crowdsource elements of this album with our fans. Also, at that point, my ex-brother-in-law starts essentially trolling me as an anonymous person on these accounts in this weird, like, uh, yeah, he starts trolling me as if he's German and it's always in kind of screwed up English Oh, and he's got all that. this, but I don't know it's him, <laughs> right? And there's all this like really hilarious interaction that goes on with this. He's he's got this. I mean, I knew it was somebody making a joke because he's got sort of this fake German syntax and this weird name that means something button, and he's pretending to be a professor. It's it's really pretty good, right? And and. Uh, uh, it's a long and complicated story, but this is the first album we really make with the internet fully engaged. And um, yeah, we sort of used it to sort of market this <laughs> research on our own album as we were creating it. But the other thing is, too, is we're kind of, I don't know, we're, we're looking at this and going, well, here's the internet. We're going to lose a bunch of money to piracy, right? So what do we do? You know? <laughs> well, maybe... You know, the disintermediation elements will knock out all the gatekeepers and what we lose to piracy, we'll get back by being able to sell this stuff directly to our fans. Mm. And there's this period where I'm like, you know, I'm not my sort of copyright hawkish self that I am these days, although I think that's, I'm not really a copyright hawk. Um, but I'm like embracing this, like sort of like going, okay, this is the way it is. This is the technological change that's happened. So let's just embrace it, see what we can do with this, right? And so one of the things is, yeah, we kind of developed this album <laughs> in conjunction with a core group of fans, like giving us feedback on it because we're leaking it. Uh, there's, there's a country, we have, to, we have to start jumping around a bit here, I think, because we're going to run out of time. But I mentioned some, you know, Countrysides yeah. comes out, which is <laughs> what an offshoot of a, of, a, of a conversation among bandmates about ironic mullets. It's on the liner notes of the album if you want to look into it deeper, but some great classic country covers, Merle Haggard and Terry Allen and Dwight Yoakam. And the very last song on the album, which you should hear, one of the best... Ain't uh, gonna suck itself. Yes, that is a great song. One of the best uh, label kiss-offs of all time, Ain't Gonna Suck Itself. Uh, you can you can find that there, and, and, and just after and, and, and you can figure out the basic meaning of what's going on from the title alone. <laughs> so, yeah. It's about a popsicle. That's right. It's yeah. about and that's popsicles. A popsicle. That's right. That's what it's about. That pop- Anything else that anybody is reading into it? By the way, that would never never get past any sort of record company censors nowadays. Um, it, it reminds me of what Mick Jagger said about let's spend the night together. I was like, you know, that's just what I say to any nice lady when I meet them when I'm out on the town. If people with dirty minds want to read in their own dirty thoughts to it, well, that's that's their problem and not mine. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. Sure thing, buddy. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Exactly. I, but yeah, so the thing, the thing about that song ain't gonna suck itself is that um, uh, you know yes we do this country covers album and we're doing the stuff that like the alt country people are kind of you guys aren't going far enough you're gonna cover mm-hmm. these great 
sort of country songs, you got to get some of the more redneck stuff, like family tradition. You got to get some of the Merle, ha- you got to get Merle Haggard. You know what I mean? So we, we were taking a, a more redneck view of country when we made that <laughs> album. And so we have this ain't going to suck itself song, or I have this thing sitting around. I'm like, all right, we're going to do this Tex-Mex style and stick this on this record. I had it sitting around for a while, but I didn't realize what the blowback would be on this is apparently um, our ex-manager, Jackson Herring, really his name and stuff like that, um, apparently people really did think he stole the resident's eyeball at one point when he worked for Bill Graham Presents, and I didn't realize that. I thought he was joking when he said that. <laughs> And boy, poor Jackson is like, I didn't steal the eye, you know, and stuff like that. He's he's forgiven me since then. But, you know, there's a line in there. I, I just put our manager in the song I to, to sort of make up this whole story and then manage to make it so that you can plausibly sing it ain't going to suck itself as the chorus. Right? <laughs> well, I flew out from Virginia on the very first day. I heard my record company exercise my pay to play. But his assistant said no Security will escort you to the parking lot It was 102 degrees I was feeling kind of hot So I walked across the street For one of those Mexican frozen popsicles Couldn't buy just one So I bought myself a box When I come back the assistant She's standing in the parking lot No hard feelings Do you want one of these? But she looks at me like I was speaking Chinese The security man walks up He helps himself to one Coincidentally Chinese And hot from standing in the sun Then he helps himself to another He puts it in her hand But she looks at it Like it was a piece of crap Or a dead or dying bird She didn't understand So I was just trying to be helpful when I said Baby Suck itself On Virgin Records It ain't gonna suck itself Yeah, yeah well, it didn't quite work, unfortunately. No. That, but that, that takes us to the next two cracker ones, and then we'll talk about the camper ones. Greenland and Sunrise in the Land of Milk and Honey. Greenland, I think, is, is good. Not great. It's a Sorry. mess. It's a mess. I'm just going to tell you this right now. Thank it's you, David. I, I, I was I, going to get divorced. Half yeah. the record, I was drunk <laughs> or stoned on. Half the record, I'm completely sober on. Uh, and you know what? I can tell exactly which ones those are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, John, really, it really comes through. <laughs> yeah. John Morand, who's the engineer, is like playing it like a almost like a journalist. That's what you sang. That's how you sang it. <laughs> That's the okay. truth. I'm not changing it. I'm not polishing it. I we're have not two over, on that. We're not overdubbing and, that vocal again. I'm sorry. That was the authentic take. Yeah. I mean, seriously, he's like, it's like a documentary maker or something doing it. So I appreciate that we did that album that way. Um, and it's just kind of a mess. And it's a document of what's going on. Um, but yeah, it, it, it sounds like some of it are, some of it is cassette demos. Some of it's just not really, I don't, I don't know what's going on with some of that, but I think give me one more chance ends up being the classic song. 
this obscure song where we were just in the studio messing around playing the B-side to an obscure band from West Virginia, uh, um, Something You Ain't Got. I mean, I'm glad we did that song. You know, There was a lot of things we did because there was no parental supervision. Well, I, and I think Darling, We're Out of Time is actually one of the finest wow. cracks. That's, that's a fabulous song. It closes the album. It closes that mess perfectly, I think. Yeah. Right. And, and, then, and it's actually recorded pretty well. Yeah. Our best days have come. Our best days have come. It's already hard. Let's not make it harder. Darling, we're out of time. So put on that dirty red lipstick. You dress like a chick. Drawn by an outsider artist Darling, we're out of time All of the flowers are dead and they're dying And leaves are tumbling down off of the trees Darling, we're out of time So pack and then I want you know, I want to say, Jeff, I, I think Gentleman's Blues is, is fantastic. I feel comfortable saying that I think Sunrise in the Land of Milk and Honey is Cracker's best album. I mean, I love them all, like children, even though I didn't make them. But I think Sunrise in the Land of Milk and Honey is so freaking good, and I have no idea how it was overlooked as much as it was. Uh, it did get, you know, Turn On, Tune Out, Drop Out got some, got some airplay a little bit. But the, the song's deeper. I, I could be wrong, I could be right. That groove is killer. And there's a little historical fiction there, too. Sacagawea and, and York. You know what time it is? Referencing a uh, uh, Brett uh, Netson from B- Built to Spill, and there's some there's some lyrical yeah. things in Hey Brett that carry over straight into Berkeley to Bakersfield. I think in terms of this kind of kind of extreme elements, and um, I, I read I think in the 300 um, both songs block. the left and the right, it's right. emerging around that time, and I come being the wishy-washy moderate slightly right of center at times slightly left of center on other things i'm fascinated by these extreme voices on both sides and i like using them as characters in the songs um so let me talk about sunrise in the land of milk and honey the thing about sunrise in land of milk and honey is it defies how we do all the cracker records going except maybe going back to kerosene hat yeah Sunrise in the Land of Milk and Honey is just the four members of the live band at that moment playing together, making up all the riffs to the songs, making up all the music, and more or less playing it live in the studio and being recorded 
in a really hands-off way by David Barbie, who's actually my director here at the University of Georgia. He's a producer. <laughs> you may know him from Sugar, the band Sugar. Yeah. But I'm actually sitting in his office right now, so i got to give him a shout-out on that because his office is quieter than mine. Um, he does that in a real hands-off way and just kind of documents the band. So what you're hearing is really the four people just making up the whole album, recording it, and just putting it out. So I think that's why that holds together in that way. Um, that I could be wrong, I could be right. Riff is something that Johnny played in Germany, and he doesn't even remember playing it. I just recorded it on a voice memo. <laughs> <laughs> and I grabbed it. Um, you know, I really enjoyed making that record. That was a really good record to make. It, I wasn't, first of all, I was sort of, my life wasn't really a nightmare anymore. Right. It was kind of easy to uh, kind of concentrate on it and stuff like that. But um, just, just a very warm together band feel that we made that record. And yes, uh, Hey Brett is because Brett Netson walks into our dressing room one day from Built to Spill and he's looking at his phone and he goes, he says something like, are we going to know when it's time to start like pulling the rich and powerful from their cars and like, you know, basically you know, he's advocating mob violence, but he's looking at his phone when I thought it was, and I said, well, you'll get a text, you'll get a text from us, which I thought was funny, but it later, uh, you know, morphed into this song. Hey, what it is. Right, and you know, and and, and political music. This that actually carries us inevitably both backwards in time and kind of forwards in time yeah. to the Camper Van Beethoven albums. Boy, I'm so excited about these! I could not believe why. Once you guys finally admitted, instead of lying to us, you scumbags, that you had actually reunited and started making new music, you came out with New Roman Times. I'm not going to lie. New Roman Times. <clears throat> we can't spend as much time on this as a lot of other records. This will be one of my two favorite Camper albums at the end of the show. This is a fantastic album written in 2003, 2004 um, that uh, envisions, you know, like, listen, uh, no offense, David, you're going to go crazy if you really try to scan the lyrics to find the narrative. You know, this, this is the way I feel about Tommy. You ever, you know, Tommy by the who. The, the, that narrative, like, yeah, no, I know Pete Townsend asserts that there's one there, but come on. It's just a bunch of really good songs that are kind of united by similar ideas that join them all together. But this is the Camper Van Beethoven album that completely reunites them, the full spirit of the group, and 
brings them back together in a way and in a way scarily that, you know, as you yourself, I think, noted, I just looked it up on Wikipedia this morning and you're like, yeah, you know, in 2018, earlier this year, you said like, it's kind of freaky how like we did this in 2003. We kind of thought it was kind of a joke. We were like playing on like the whole red state, blue state mm-hmm. paranoia. And now it's yeah. like more real than ever. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it's a world where you know, the United States has been divided in North America really has been divided into like six different countries. You know, there's a California country. There's yeah, a- I never really, yeah, I never really unified. In, yeah, like, exactly. Unified in like South America. But yeah. the thing is, is that musically beyond the lyrical conceit, which is actually pretty solid, man, these are good lyrics. This is so good. I love it. It begins with, it begins with those, a classic camper, instrumental and prelude and then sons of the golden west i love sons of the golden west so much and then 51 7 that's gonna be at the end when i name my five favorite camper songs 51 7 is one of my favorite camper songs of all time might makes right and then of course my favorite twin peaks joke of all time that gum you like (laughs) is gonna come back into style i don't know where you got the idea that's been a joke of mine since i was 16 years old and then you made a song about it and when it made me feel like you were reading my mind and I'd I love reading your mind. Soviet spies swim upstream disguised as drought. They do. Yeah, get out of my mind. That's my stuff in there. You have no right to root around in it. At the Chelsea Hotel, before I sketch you away. That gun you like is back in style. Um, I think this album is great, and I also think that they're, you know, talking about that split personality. You have you just like Berkeley to Bakersfield. You have with Camper, you have um, you know uh, La Costa Perdida, and then you have El Camino Real, which is the Northern California versus Southern California kind of a double album set. Think of it as the Use Your Illusion one and two <laughs> of the Camper Van Beethoven discography. Fantastic records, both. I slightly prefer the first, maybe because I, I tend towards the dreamier, more psychedelic side of things. Um, but I, I would I would argue that the first song on um, La Costa Perdida is one of the best songs you guys ever did. It's called Come On Down the Coast. Um, just uh, sad, soft, dreamy, floating uh, very kind of lost in its own thoughts. Again, uh, this is the, you know, kind of a place where you feel Cracker and Camper meeting. And of course, you know, personnel are playing on both of the albums at this point. You know, you have the core of Camper, but you have, you know, your friends from Cracker coming in and do certain tracks. So I'm not totally shocked about it. But God, you know, people, you know, please, here, come on down the coast. What a beautiful song. Josephina, come down and see
don't know if, if Scott, you have any thoughts on these, these later era camper albums, but I, I just, I'm shocked. You know, it's, it's like we talk about old 97s. You know, like, how do they still keep putting out good music? You know, even to the present day, you'd have long since thought they'd have shot their what? Nope, not at all. I, I just want to turn quickly to Berkeley to Bakersfield, which is the most recent uh, Cracker album. And again, it's split in half. The first uh, album is the Berkeley half, and it has the Kerosene Hat era lineup playing. The second half is the Bakersfield half. It is steel guitar and Johnny doing his best, you know, vocal, country vocals. Um, I want to point people to Almond Grove, which I think is just such a fantastic song. David, Almond Grove, you play in concert sometimes. What's the reaction that you get from people when you, when you play Almond Grove? Ugh. It's a hard one to play sometimes because I see people in the crowd who've been touched by the opioid crisis burst into tears in that song. Uh and you know i've had to like sort of walk to the side of the stage for a moment and gain my composure and come back before but if you don't know what the song's about it wraps the uh it wraps sort of the after effects of sort of you know how many years now is it like you know 17 years of the afghanistan war and our involvement in the middle east and sort of you know a lot of forgotten veterans out there or there are families that are the casualties of this, and it wraps that with, you know, what is essentially sort of become a huge, you know, the opioid crisis, which nobody, you know, I was just sort of shocked. Very, very few musicians have even touched upon on this. Mm-hmm. And I wrap those two things together in this song because uh, it, in a way, ties kind of the coast the coastal side of berkeley uh to bakersfield album the berkeley side it ties it to the central valley which is the inland side of california that's going on with this album in that um, I'm trying to do sort of I'm trying to divide the state east and west and I'm also trying to divide the state blue and red with Berkeley to Bakersfield and I'm trying to give everybody like their honest shot you know like their honest like I want I'm trying to be as a writer I'm trying to be like old school journalist like i'm just reporting these stories here mm-hmm. you know i'm not letting my personal opinions interfere in it but with with almond grove i really did try to sort of step inside of that 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 story there and i i don't know in some ways i'm, I, I'm gonna put that in my top five if you want to listen to if you want to know what what cracker is um I I'm really really glad. You won't be the only song. one, by the way. Just so you know. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, but that that's a that's a moment. And you know, when we recorded that, Brian Howard, who's our current bass player, when we recorded that, he's like, "That's the best song I've ever played on." I was like, "Really?" I was just like, you know, we was right after the take. You know, it was like it just overwhelmed him. You know, there's something that really happened with that song when we played that song. All right, David, now that, that we've gotten through, well, a good number of the albums, we, we did not quite have time to hit them all, but a good number of the albums, I, I have just a, a little list of, like, Cracker, Camper Van Beethoven, Minutia, Trivia, that I, I'm not going to waste the opportunity to ask you about. So <laughs> this, could, this could be rapid fire if need be, if, if the answers are simple, but I'll throw a, a few things at you if that's all right. Yeah, sure. So the f- first of all, the phrase "cigarettes and carrot juice," right, which which pops up on Big Dipper. It's the name of a camper compilation. It's in the lyrics for "Long Plastic Hallway," which I think in and of itself is a Hunter S. Thompson reference. So, cigarettes and carrot juice. Why why that phrase? Do you like the way it sounds? Does it mean something special to you? Um, you know what Cockney li- uh, rhyming slang is? I, like when you I say something and it rhymes with what you're talking about and then you cut it off to the first part. Like so, so for instance, in, in that part of London that when they had that dialect, like um, apples and pears mean stairs. So okay. you might say apples. So we were probably sit i hate to like why does every story with camper van Beethoven is like we were sitting around stone <laughs> we probably were and we were in london and we came up with cigarettes and carrot juice for santa cruz it doesn't oh, quite work okay decided that was the because you know you would see somebody you literally in santa cruz see somebody like smoking a hand-rolled like drum cigarette but at the same time you know drinking healthy carrot juice or something <laughs> like that right yeah we were always just like that's so insane you know that was like the image that we had in our head so um i started using that phrase to sort of represent not me or us or that time when we were sort of younger and we lived in santa cruz and that makes yeah, sense. Or a reference to Santa Cruz or a reference to that lifestyle. So cigarettes and carrot juice is the Santa Cruz years for uh, you know, Camper Van Beethoven's album. And I don't know. It's also sort of a little beef hearty or something like that. I don't mm-hmm. know how to describe it, but it, it worked for us. But that's all it was, right? And that makes a ton of sense for Big Dipper because that's, I mean, that's Santa Cruz. That's the, that the amusement park was in Santa Cruz, right? Right, exactly. So that's sort of the first place I think it pops up, and then it pops up in, uh, you know, long plastic hallways. Yep. Uh, you know, I think us talking, you know, it's cigarettes and carrot juice, marijuana, and lots of booze that threw the flower of youth into that stew. Uh, the character in the song is like, you know, talking about how they threw away sort of their youth in a certain way. But anyway, yes. Two, um, Maggie. 
there's a lot of references in, in Cracker songs, especially about people around the band, like, you know, friends and texts and managers and all that sort of stuff. There's a there's a song called Maggie, of course, on Greenland, which is one of my favorite songs on that album. And there's a, another reference to Maggie on uh, Turn On, Tune In, Drop Out from Sun, uh, Sunrise. Is that is that someone that we should know about? Is that an actual person or just a, a convenient name? It's actually my wife and it's her alter ego, which she's, <laughs> it's not that she's being mean. It's just, uh, she's like a concert promoter yeah. and she's a super alpha. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if that's politically correct to say that, but I tell her that I was like, you're getting way too alpha. You know, like and I refer to her as Maggie when she's doing that. Okay, Maggie. It's just like a nickname. And she's, uh, she, of course, you know, look, my wife actually, her nickname, her Twitter handle she got from Snoop Dogg, okay? <laughs> Snoop Dogg gave her her Twitter handle, okay? I don't know if she wants this exposed right now, but it's... it's uh, too late. But, it, but it's, it's awesome, right? So she takes a joke really, really well. So um, she won't be offended by that. But yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's her. Okay. So she was also our manager at one point. Um, and still, it, well, no, I'm not sure I had her at one point. She was our manager, and she ran my record label for years before we were married. And so she's been around the bands for a long time. So she has been nicknamed Maggie for a long time. <laughs> Question on uh, 51.7 from New Roman Times. Now, the, the lyrics, as you as you scan them, as you read them, indicate that like the 51.7 is, is, is an elite fighting group or something along those lines. Yeah. And it makes more sense if you know the whole album, right? I, yeah. I have always interpreted 51.7 as also a reference to your age at the time of the albums. 51 minus 7 is 44. You were 44 when New Roman Times came out. I'm hoping that you're not going to tell me I'm totally wrong and have to think about the song in a different way. But was that is that also a reference to your age at that time? No, it wasn't. But that's awesome. Oh. So that's like Soviet spies swim upstream disguised as twelve. Because I mean, so, I th- I mean it works. You are too bad. It works um, in the song too. Because I mean, you know, you you don't know for brains until you're fifty-one-seven, until you're you know around the age I am, until you're forty-four years old. That's how I always kind of kind of got it. Yeah. Um, that's just me, I guess. That's good. I may just use that from now on, but, uh, um, no, I hadn't thought about it. It, it was, it was a number that was, um, stenciled onto the side of a road case that we bought from some other band. And I don't know what it means. I think why I, why I thought that was on, on Elvis Costello's When I Was Cruel album, he has a song called 45, 
and he does that sort of playing around with the numbers. He's talking about 45s as, a, as an album, of course, but he's all, or as a single, but he also means, there's a line in the song where he goes, nine years later a child is born, and he's talking about himself, who was born in 1954. So I think that might have been on my brain when I'm mm-hmm. thinking about 517, uh, but... Okay. Yeah, that's a great reference. I did not know that. I I'll, know that song. I I'll, did not know that. I'll keep that. I'll keep that for myself, I guess, the 517. Okay, that's cool. Um, Mark Linkus, we, we just barely touched on him during during our, our talk about the albums now sick of goodbyes was a song you guys wrote together was on kerosene hat uh he produced uh, uh brides of neptune from forever you guys had a, 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 a i will i would characterize it as a deep friendship just from what i can read and and how you wrote about him after he passed away you talk a little bit about Mark and, 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 and his music. Jeff and I are, are a little weird. Jeff and I both have different sweet spots. We have a lot some crossover, but we have different sweet spots for the music that we really are passionate and we love. And I never would have guessed, but Sparkle Horse is one of those bands that are in both of our total sweet spots. And so we both share a love of Mark and, and Sparkle Horse. How did your relationship develop and, and what was it like working with him through the years? Wow. So, like, Mark Linkus was literally the first person other than my girlfriend at the time when I lived in Richmond. He was the first person I met in Richmond, right? Mm -hmm. I came to Richmond. These two dudes were standing in front of us in the sound check that we were doing. And then I came off stage, and him and his brother come over. It's basically Mark and his brother Matt. And they come over and start talking to me. They've apparently got a rehearsal space in the basement of this venue or whatever like that and i was just literally the first people that i meet in richmond and so when i moved there a few months later or half a year later or whatever um this is like the only other person i knew besides my girlfriend <laughs> who was from <laughs> richmond right and uh so they were like the first people i called right you know it's like what are you guys doing you know mm-hmm. i'm here in richmond you know <laughs> And, um, you know, there's nothing like spending time on the road with somebody to really become close to them or either to hate them. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Mark, we hired as our first roadie and, uh, for our first uh, cracker tour. And, um, we had this other guy from New York and they loved each other. These two guys did, right. (laughs) But they were polar opposites. One guy who was in our crew is like this New York, Long Island, fast talking, moving really, really fast, you know, just just constantly wisecracking and stuff like that. Mark's the quiet guy, smoking a cigarette, moving at about one-tenth of the pace of the guy from New York, and just <laughs> one or two words here and there again, you know, and like... Gets as much done as a guy from New York, right? I don't know how to describe this, but he's, just, he's this <laughs> sort of certain Southern archetype, right? And it reminds me a lot of my cousins and my uncles and stuff from Arkansas and stuff. So it's sort of this little bond here. But the thing about Mark, I think that's not clear from his records because they're deeply introspective. The guy was like really funny and like a total practical joker. Mm-hmm. Uh, at times um and i you know sort of uh that's really what makes our friend our, our made our friendship like really deep was um sort of like sort of beyond the artist the guy the guy's just like he like 
I don't know how to describe his sense of humor very well, but, um, you know, like I got a dog and he decided I should name the dog stay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I'm not going to do that uh, to a dog, but he would come up with like, yeah, but it'd be really great. Stay. You know, <laughs> I don't know, like almost like this sort of mountain Southern Monty Python esque, absurdity mm-hmm. that does not really come out that much in the music unless right. you know it's there yeah. and i just always appreciated that i remember the day that my um oldest son was born and i was at the hospital and the phone rang in like you know our room there at the hospital Right. And I picked it up. I don't know how he got the number, but I picked it up. He goes, yeah, Stuttry there. I mean, he, he knew what we were going to name our son. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's his idea of, I don't know, that's both really touching, really kind and funny. Yeah. You know, I don't know how he gets the number, how he called our room. And like my son is like, maybe 20 minutes old and he called, he decides that what he's going to do is give him his first phone call. <laughs> right. I, I was, it was really great. He wrote songs about my, some of those songs that sound like love songs, um, that, uh, like he and I co-wrote or he wrote are actually about one of my dogs <laughs> that he totally loved, who was just this scrappy, completely messed up mutt that is like part, poodle and part something else was always had mats in her hair and was like covered in filth and this stuff because she was like this stray dog she loved being outside she'd also when we found her she had two broken legs so she had these pins in one leg and she kind of hobbled around um mark loved that dog that's lucy that's fluffy lucy he gave her okay. that name fluffy <laughs> lucy and, uh, you know, he just sometimes would come by my house and go, can I borrow Lucy to drive around with? He's like, you know, it's just the dog would ride around with him in this this old beat-up pickup truck, and they, they smoke cigarettes. I don't know where they went <laughs> or what they did and stuff like that, but he took this sort of the, the, the last dog you would rescue from the shelter dog, right? And mm-hmm. um, I don't know, there's something about somebody's – soul when they do stuff like that yeah was, yes like, yes i don't know i just anyway we were on the road for years well not years but we were he was definitely on the road for us for the first year of cracker mm-hmm. uh, Mark, you know we would stop at like a rest area in western nebraska you know and he'd pull out a little propane, this old suitcase he got from the Swift store and he'd pull out a propane burner and he'd take one of those espresso pots <laughs> And make himself espresso like on the side of like <laughs> the road at a rest area in western Nebraska. People would be like, who the hell is this guy? What the hell is this guy doing? And stuff like that. Yeah. Um, just kind of taught me in a lot of ways to just sort of, well, I don't know, look at the world in a different way. So we became very close because of that.
I'm Mark. There's a, I mentioned how much I love Sunrise, and you explained that it's basically four guys live in the studio. And there's one song that I, I don't think that's the case for. That's that's Darling One, and that's a uh, one that Mark Linkus has a co-write on, and yeah, you, and then Susanna Hoffs and Davey is on there too. My my Spidey sense says there's an interesting story behind that song because based on the songwriters, that's got to be a ten year old song, fifteen year old song by the time it made the album. Yeah, we wrote that for um, Susanna Hoffs. Um, and so on a solo album, and we sort of, I don't know if any, if it ever really even, make many people even notice that song on that album and stuff like that, but she did it fairly differently. And I always thought there was uh, just kind of a different way to do that song. So actually that song does come from a different batch of recording that's probably more like from Greenland or something like that that mm-hmm. we didn't use and then it went on to and kind of got re-recorded and reworked with Sunrise um, so yeah you're right that's a different song and that's out there and um, I don't know there was some talk that maybe that was a single or something like that and uh so you know that's when i'm like adam you've got adam duritz right who i've known for a really long time adam duritz from counting crows i'm like i never asked for this favor but will you come and do a song with me you know so that you know i don't know help sell the album basically but um you know here's another guy that i've also spent a lot of time on tour with and, uh, you know, so you get to know somebody really well. And I've sung plenty of songs, you know, usually covers and stuff like that on stage with him. So it's a very natural thing to do. So, yeah, that's the song that should have probably been a single that was that's never a great a single. song. Yeah. Or the second time it was probably right. should have been a single for Susanna Haas. Then it wasn't a single for us either. Um, I think one more one more song question on this on this path uh, from Greenland. I need better friends, and this is. Um, I think it, I think I actually read this from the Three Hundred Songs blog that you wrote. Um, that that the song and the album in general was one where, and you you explained to us earlier, it was a it was a messed up album, but at a time when you were considering just not doing this anymore, not 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 recording, not being a musician, and I I read I need better friends as this sort of realization that. The, the quote-unquote rock star lifestyle mm-hmm. is not exactly what David Lowry wants for the remainder of his life, or at least the way that most people picture it. Is that about right? Yeah. That's, I mean, yes. In a nutshell, yes. That's what it is. That's me sort of saying. No, I, I don't get me wrong. I love playing on stage. We played this little club in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes region the other night, and I was like, wow. That was probably my top 20, (laughs) you know, for me just enjoying the show, you know. Mm -hmm. I love playing. I just, you know, it's sort of like you every night you go to work at a party, you know. And and those are fun, like, you know, when you're a civilian and it's like, you know, once a week or, you know, once every two weeks and stuff like that. It's a different thing to make it 
sort of your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, it just, it, I just, I wasn't doing well with it then. I think I'm actually in a much better place with all of that stuff mm-hmm. now. Like how I look at going out and doing a show, how I look at going out and, and, playing to our fans and, uh, and how I look at making an album and stuff like that. And it's frankly because I just don't do as many shows as I used to. Mm-hmm. Last year, last two years, we might have done a fair amount. But in general, we just don't do as many shows. We kind of pick and choose what we do. And yeah, that was me having to figure out, you know, sort of what part of being sort of the rock musician, the rock star, Star, even though it's, I don't know if I'm counting as a rock star, a minor rock entity. Um, it's like trying to figure out, pick and choosing what's good about doing this and what isn't. I was drinking jasmine tea when the coon squad came for me. It was all my drunken friends. They One of the things in there that I'm talking about is just like kind of the camaraderie. I really love the camaraderie of being right. on the road and you know, the, the, the long-running inside jokes and the fatalist humor, uh, fatalistic humor. Um, uh, you know, it's funny, you, uh, we were talking about Sunrise because uh, there's a certain, after we did that album, Sunrise, that song Yala Yala was getting played on Armed Forces mm. and somehow DJs in, in, the, you know, in the Middle East theater, and we went and did this sort of USO tour of Iraq. And look, I'm not comparing the life of a touring musician to that of an infantry man at a forward operating base or a patrol base or something like that. But there are some similarities. One, <laughs> there's long periods of time when you're doing absolutely nothing and you're completely bored, punctuated by moments of pure chaos. Okay. <laughs> um, no, not getting shot at, but. Yes, it's nobody's trying to blow me up with improvised explosive devices, but there's a certain like boredom, 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 oh, boredom, 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 right? Pace. And that does something to your psyche. And then there's all this fatalistic and sort of gallows humor, like classic thing, sitting around backstage, drummer Frank Fernero, his classic joke was asked, would be to ask the tour manager, how many tickets did we sell in advance tonight? And they go, oh, we sold 600 tickets. He goes... It's not raining, so like at least 200 people show up, right? <laughs> you know, always looks like this is the end of your career. You know, somewhere you're walking on stage and somebody turns to you, and it's a Tuesday night, and you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Nothing wrong with Tulsa, Oklahoma, or something like that. Somebody turns to you right before you walk on stage and says, this is our big moment. This is our big chance. This could be our big break, right? Hmm. Um, there's a certain kind of humor like that, uh, or, <laughs> or, you know, like it's just making fun of your situation and where you are, yeah. just kind of how crappy everything is. We are. So we're in, we're in, uh, 
Iraq and these MRAPs. And after a while, like the soldiers, the infantry, well, soldiers, actually, they were airborne. Sorry, guys. I know that I'm going to get like beat up now. These airborne guys we were with that we were traveling with figured out that we had complete gallows humor. So they just kind of let loose on us. <laughs> it's like really up stuff, right? But it was just funnier than shit. Like, you get stopped because there's a truck and there's nobody by the truck and we're driving through Baghdad in the middle of the day. So they start taking bets, you know, on whether the truck is going to blow up if we drive past it. And the funny thing, of course, about this, it's hysterical in a dark humor kind of way, is that nobody's going to be able to pay off on this bet if it does. Sure. Much, right? <laughs> so everybody's betting, a th- you know, betting a thousand dollars that it's going to blow up. Do you, uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? Or where are they doing? Wait, they were doing it the opposite. I don't know. They were just like making, it constructing these crazy bets, right. right? You know, that would never, never have to pay yeah. off. Everybody wanted to be on the blowing up sides, <laughs> basically, that they were doing. You know, stuff like that. And I go, you know, that, that's obviously that's not as harsh as the kind of stuff that we do. But um, and so that's that song, y'all, y'all. One of the things was is I just took that off of a, you know, I took a lot of those. I just looked up a blog. Uh, I was reading a blog for for New Roman Times, actually, just because I felt like I needed to get some lingo, some infantry, like mm-hmm. lingo and stuff like that. And I read this great blog that was just a definition of all of these slang things and stuff like that. And it had this certain swing and swagger to it that I thought was like lyrics, <laughs> you know, I was like, this has this got the feeling of lyrics. And that's kind of how y'all y'all was me sort of riffing on that, the way this blog was. Right. So I don't know whose blog that was. It was an anonymous soldier. So, <laughs> Well, credit to him or her, whoever he was. Well, yeah, I think you weren't really allowed to blog about this stuff. So they're, Anonymous. So sure. Credit them, whoever they are. Yes. Well, if you've heard the name David Lowry, not in the context of Camper or Cracker in the past couple of years, it might be because of what we talked uh, mentioned right at the start, which is his work as an artist rights activist, his work as the chief muckraker, as you put it, at the Tricordist. And yeah. this this big discussion about streaming music and, and artists, how artists get paid and what they get paid. And um, how, how did how did this become your thing how did how did david lowry of 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 all the musicians out there become the guy spearheading this effort well you know i I went to this technology music technology slash conference and i went to it and i decided you know what i was going to bring this i was going to talk about something else i don't remember what it was but i thought you know what i'm going to talk about how actually the digital environment artists retain a lower percentage of the revenues from what I can tell than they did from sort of the bad old music business. Like at Mm -hmm. that point, I was kind of like this sort of technology forward artist, but I was starting to feel skeptical. So I kind of came out of this conference and I, and I did this talk I call meet the new boss worse than the old boss question mark. And the notion was that essentially, you know, our, there's a lot of great things about the digital world, but have we replaced the old sort of record company system with this other kind of system that actually we get a lower percentage of the revenues being generated by our work? And I just kind of put that question out there. It's actually fairly mild-mannered, this talk, 
but I got so much blowback kind of from the tech bros and people that I thought were my friends and stuff like that, that it pissed me off, right? <laughs> so I started blogging about it, right? And was like, okay, well, you know, if you're going to call me names and stuff like that, I'm just going to go ahead and sort of write this blog about the issues with the technology business and where they rip off the artist. Not that this hasn't been going on for a hundred years with artists, but I started writing about that. And sort of as I did that, I got a lot of other artists who were kind of quietly feeling the same way and they started emailing me and talking about all this and somehow you know I get I don't know I felt like I got drafted into being like I started getting interviews from reporters and stuff like that I sort of got drafted to be the guy to talk about this stuff you know and it's not all bad I mean this new world is is fantastic creatively but as far as revenues go, and especially for songwriters, it's kind of a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And th if this is not enough, if this isn't, if this doesn't make most songwriters sort of become skeptical of government regulation and become anti-regulatory in their views, uh, I don't know what would. But listen, so almost every use of a song except for if you license something for a commercial or for film or television or maybe like a, if something gets sampled or something like that. Mm -hmm. Every other use, there's either a compulsory license, that is the federal government says you must license, with a rate that they publish, <laughs> you know, your price, and um, or there's a, a Department of Justice consent decree. So you have this massive regulatory overhead on the songwriting business where virtually, you know, I would say 80% of my income, uh, the, the price is set by one of these two um, government interventions here, mm -hmm. right? So there is no free market for songs, right? So... When we get into talking about the streaming services, I'll say something that's probably the the, the Spotify people are going to cough coffee through their nose. <laughs> it's not really their fault, right? Because the government describes the uses and sets the fees mm -hmm. on streaming services for songwriters, right? However, what happened was, is I was actually teaching a class here at the University of Georgia, and we were looking at royalty statements. I was explaining music publishing and songwriting and how the rights work and how you get royalties. And we were looking at that. Somebody goes, where's your Spotify royalties? I go, well, they're over here. Well, I flipped through a few pages. I go, no, wait. maybe they're over here. And yeah, I left that class and I was going, where are my Spotify royalties? They have to pay two royalties. They paid one of them, but they hadn't paid the other. Mm -hmm. This is by law. And... I'm like, wow, yeah, this is kind of weird. So I started asking my friends. They're like, yeah, I've been noticing that too. I can't figure this out. And the more people I talked to, I realized that essentially what had happened is any a whole entire class of songwriters that were not affiliated either with major publishers or with the National Music Publishers Association, we weren't getting paid, it looked like. I mean, there were a few that were, but by and large, there was a class of songwriters that weren't getting paid. Hmm. So, you know, with class actions, like, so there's a 
$43 million settlement or whatever right. it is. Right. You know I don't get $43 million. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what class action means. <laughs> yeah, and if I get $2,000, I'll be surprised. <laughs> and, you know, in some ways, I didn't really expect this to be as adversarial as it was because certain companies, are, um, won't name names, but begins with, G and ends with GLE might have a couple of vowels in it are pretty good at embracing those class actions to solve a problem that they didn't realize that they had and mm. just get it settled. Right. Um, so in a way this was a va- adversarial situation with Spotify. It's not completely settled yet, but mm-hmm. you know, really in a lot of ways settling that class action is what cleared their way um, to go public. Um, right. They may not admit that, but I think that's what happened. And I don't really have anything against Spotify. I mean, and as soon as the, we can finally get all the objectors and everybody, you know, and all jump through all the hoops, the courts and all that stuff, all my stuff will go right back up on Spotify. You know, um, what the real problem is is that songwriters' revenue from st- virtually every digital service, whether it's like, you know, Sirius or Pandora, non-interactive streaming or interactive streaming like Spotify, the songwriters have their revenues capped at 10.4% of gross service revenue or something like that. Um, Prorated out. It's incredibly complex calculation. And uh, I mean, Spotify won't pay us more because it'd be stupid for them to pay us more because right. that's what right. their competitors, that's what everybody pays. The market is flat. So I don't really see this as Spotify's problem. Where I see this more of a problem is that where the issue was is there was a way for them to obtain licenses and pay royalties. The reason the class action came about was because they were they really if they couldn't figure out who wrote a song, they, they shouldn't have used it by mm-hmm. law because then they didn't know who to pay the royalties to and then they didn't get the compulsory federal license. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways, um, you know, the, the class action sets up a system so that everybody who wasn't paid for however many years that went on for to get paid and then it sets up a process going forward and then ultimately, I think it drove this Music Modernization Act, which is not perfect. I would like to see songwriting royalties go to a free market system, set up some sort of exchange or something like that, the way we can trade c- cryptocurrency or something like that, uh-huh. or the way we trade stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. I would have liked to see us gradually fade into something like that. It's a compromise bill. What we did is we come up, came up with an easier way uh, for the streaming services to license songwriter songs. In turn, they pay for the overhead to set up sort of a, a sort of a clearinghouse database to license songs. Okay. Um, and they, uh, there's also some concessions that 
you know, uh, we get, uh, we imagine that we get to consider market judges get to consider market forces before they set rates <laughs> or market rates, you know, outside of the streaming world, um, which was actually forbidden in the previous licenses. So in the end, I think this whole um, class action lawsuit stuff and me being an activist, I think this helped drive the Music Modernization Act, which is a compromise. I would have liked to have seen it more free market based, but it's a step towards something that's sure. better. Um, it's also the first like major copyright reform that anybody's really been able to pass for like 15 years, mm -hmm. which is an achievement in and of itself um, to get everybody on the music, um, the rights holder side, performers, labels, publishers, songwriters, you know, producers like to all sort of, okay, this is what we agree should happen. That in itself was a process that I think is going to be enormously helpful to artists going forward. Um, but yeah, ultimately we got to get to a better, we got to get to, a, we need to slow, slowly transition to something that looks more like the free markets yeah. because I think ultimately songwriters are underpaid if there was a market for these songs. And ultimately, I think this helps companies like um, give Spotify and those companies kind of some sort of certainty over how the process sure. works. And um, the real problem now is um, YouTube, <coughs> because of their safe harbors, gets to essentially use a lot of music that they don't actually pay royalties on because it's uploaded by users. Right. Obviously there's difficult issues there. You want to have people have maximum freedom of expression if you're like me, but at the same time, look, it's YouTube largely functions as a music streaming service. 47% of all streams of music are on YouTube, right? Yeah. And they pay the worst out of, all the streaming services. <laughs> I mean, like take a zero off, right? Or add a leading zero. I'm sorry, add a leading zero. You know, uh, after the decimal point. So uh, it's a problem that we have to approach. Yeah, and um, yeah, there we are. So David Lowry, Cracker, Camper Van Beethoven, and as we mentioned, University of Georgia now, tricordist at elsewhere. This, this ends the portion where we discuss the career of the artist, and, and usually Jeff and, and, and I and, and, and the guest uh, give our listeners the choice, our choices for the, the two albums from the artist that the listener should own and the five songs that they should hear. And that can be interpreted in many different ways, whether it's like the five songs you'd be able to give them the taste of the band, your personal favorites. It's pretty wide open. But um, you're pretty close to these bands, and so we were wondering if you might want to take part in this with us. Sure. All right. So we're going to go first. Yeah. Or do you want to go first? You go. We always let our guests go first. So we're looking for. We're going to do this for each band, for Camper and for Cracker. The the, the two albums you'd uh, you'd recommend to people and the five songs they just absolutely have to hear and uh, go for go for it with with both those both both the uh, artists I should say. Yeah. So you know, I don't think art and commerce are necessarily exclusive, right? And I'm actually going to tell people to pick well, the two most popular albums by each band. If they really wanted to start somewhere, they start with Key Lime Pie, which I think has the best sales over the long term, and 
by Camper Van Beethoven and Kerosene Hat. Yes, these are our most popular albums. But I think in a way, you know, if I'm giving somebody just one album and I want to show people what it is we do that's different from other people, Mm -hmm. these albums work for me. You know, Kerosene Hat has the punkish stuff. It has sort of the almost alternative rock stuff. It's got pretty much like the country stuff on it. It's got the blues rock. It's got the dead on it, right? Yep. Key Lime Pie, it doesn't really have the jokey stuff on it, but it has the crazy kind of wordplay, paint pictures with words. It's different than how most people probably would describe Camper Van Beethoven, right? It Mm -hmm. sort of would go, well, somebody just described this band to me totally different, and this album doesn't exactly fit that description of this band so that's kind of the reason i give them key lime pie i guess that goes back to jeffrey's problem with me that we were always lying to our fans so i'm gonna <laughs> lie to our fans again and say hey this represents our albums and i'm gonna say key lime pie and for the songs and, and for this certainly feel free to if you want to take five from camper and five from cracker feel free okay so this is super um, – I couldn't actually quite do it. But I would say for Camper Van Beethoven, you have to listen to Take the Skinheads Bowling. Right? Mm. I mean, it's just a throwaway song. It fits the attitude of most of our albums in that, like, yeah, well, these words don't mean anything. Here's this little song. You can sing along to it. I don't know. There it is, right? <laughs> but – at the same time, um, I would say the song I of Fatima from Camper Van Beethoven, mm-hmm. it's a little atypical from us, but it's us pretending to be sort of a 70s classic rock band or something in a way. And it has really, I don't know, you know, that whole second half of I of Fatima really it's pretty close to us trying to do Led Zeppelin. I mean, it's pretty close to Led Zeppelin. It's us, obviously, right. yes, us trying yes. to do Led Zeppelin. But I feel like we we're actually able to pull it off. So there's some sort of musicianship there that I want people to know about, mm-hmm. Camper Van Beethoven. Uh, then I think I'm going to go for Big Dipper over all of her favorite fruit as just like a ballad that's told you know, sort of without proper choruses, you know, not repetitive (laughs) choruses, right? I think both bands are pretty good at that. Yeah. And all her favorite fruit is fictional, whereas Big Dipper is semi-autobiographical, right? So I'm going to go with Big Dipper. Um, What am I at? Three? Yep. Okay. Then I would have to say... Uh, Almond Grove, just because I don't have any songs I've written that like make people openly weep. <laughs> so that one, except for probably that one. Yeah. So I'm gonna have to say that that's that's a song where we touched a nerve and people have to hear that. But last one, I'm gonna give you one of our hits, and it's probably not the biggest hit, but I'm gonna say Euro Trash Girl. Yeah. Which we haven't, somehow we have not mentioned until this point of the show, two and a half hours in, but it's probably one of the Uh, fan favorites and best known songs. Yeah, and and 
globally, I don't know. I know low gets a lot of play around the world, but weirdly, Euro Trash Girl is sort of known more, like especially, I don't know, like, I don't know why South America, uh, Asia. It's like, oh, yeah, Euro Trash Girl, right? It's sort of this weird culty song. But the thing about that is, is that sums up both the cracker and camper style really well. Mm-hmm. There's something shame ambling and sort of northern california grateful dead about it it's very got heavy on the country licks and then the story is just you know you those lyrics could have been from either band so i'm gonna say euro trash girl out of all of the hits introduces you to both bands and you know it's also eight minutes long yes (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna say that got a tattoo in berlin And a case of the crabs A rose and a dagger On the palm of my hand And I'll search the world over For my angel in black Yeah, search the world over kind of hard for me to do but um just throw it out there i can imagine it was difficult uh, so I, I i actually two and five for each of the uh, bands which which jeff did as well so from from camper i take uh uh the the, the first one okay telephone free landslide victory and our beloved revolutionary sweetheart i think with 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 new roman times just missing out i think that's such a high quality return the songs themselves um Border Ska from the first album. I, I think it's the first instrumental on the first album, and I, I love the song and, and the introduction to give to the band. I think Sad Lover's Waltz from uh, 2 and 3. Uh, Turquoise Jewelry, which I mentioned previously, is just one of my favorite fun, up-tempo. I, I'm with the L.A. radio station, I think. you know, Yeah, play it on the radio. Borderline <laughs> from Key Lime Pie, I think could have been a hit in any other kind of environment. I love that harmonica. And uh, in 51.7, which I, of course, have my own personal interpretation of, I suppose. Uh, from, from, from Cracker, um, Gentleman's Blues and Sunrise. I, I just, I, those I just hold a little closer than the other ones. As I mentioned, I love absolutely all of them. But Gentleman's Blues, for a real look at what you know, all, the, all the genres, all the types of music, uh, all the friends of the band playing on the album, I think just makes it a, a, a complete mm-hmm. picture. And then Sunrise, again, I, I, I argue, I think that's the, the best album, Cracker's best album, Sunrise in the Land of Milk and Honey. It's, it's a, it's a late, later career, but I think it's the best. Songs, um, This is Cracker Soul from the first Cracker album. Um, Big Dipper oh, yeah. from the Golden Age, which again is the mm-hmm. song that, as I heard, just sold me completely on the band. Uh, Seven Days from Gentleman's Blues, which in addition to being a great song involving the characters around the band, just just kicks ass in a major way. 
Um, oh, that actually, I got to say something about that. I think that's the finest recording of Cracker. I think yeah. that mix and that root recording that I think Don Smith, that's, I think, well, you know, Don Smith passed away. That is of his that I would submit yes. to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for engineering and production. I think it's just master. Yep, seven days, and if I can do like a like a like a three B, been around the world. I think been around the world sounds to get to get to your point. Been around the world sounds perfect. You know that it's that, recorded about thirty minutes before seven days. So <laughs> in the three, same you guys are in the right frame of mind, and, and the way jo- I, I think that's that's a, that's a, you you have the only writing credit I think on been around the world, but the way Johnny just inhabits that song his guitar that yeah. solo and the way he just moves it around i think it's perhaps one of the sexiest cracker songs just that mood and that feel is amazing and how wish i was in your bed tonight to taste the salt upon a salt upon your neck to be your body Could be wrong, could be right. From from sunrise, that groove just kills me every time. I, I love. Could be wrong, could be right. And and I have almond grove on my list too. I think all three of us have almond grove on on the list. Uh, so that's that's saying something. It's a, it's a powerful song off a a great album too, Ber- Berkeley to Bakersfield, which unfortunately we didn't talk a ton about, but but one people should check out too. So there's my list, and I hope it meets your approval. Well, thank you very much. Okay, Jeff, your turn. All right. Wow. Top two, top five for both Camper Van, Beethoven, and Cracker. That's great. That gives me four and ten. You know, and and by the way, I'm going to stretch my limits there because again, host's prerogative. For Camper Van, Beethoven, I mean, I love the early albums so much, but I'm going to have to say that there are two albums that you must check out. First of all, our beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart. That is the sine qua non of early pre-breakup Camper Van, Beethoven. Uh, every track on it even the bad tracks are good in their own way because they explain to you what this band was about uh the second one and you know i know we didn't really get enough time to talk about it on the show but i can't recommend it to you enough is new roman times that was their first official although not really uh reunion album in 2004 uh fantastic record uh and uh again you you decade Plus, after they had broken up, they come back. They have the same vibe. They're, they're still with it. It's the same group that you loved back then. Uh, the modernization doesn't hurt them in the slightest. My, f- my five songs uh, are not going to be five songs because ha-ha, screw you. Uh, my first would be Circles. That's from two and three. We talked about it on the show. Uh, just a fantastic song. Playing an earlier camper song backwards and making a new one out of it. Uh, my second would be from the self-titled album. Uh, it would be a, a sequence. It's We Saw Jerry's Daughter, which then flows into Surprise Truck. Uh, you don't want to Google and find out what a surprise truck actually is. Uh, it, your Google may explode on you. Uh, <laughs> then uh, Seven Languages, uh, which was off of the Vampire Can Mating Oven 
EP, uh, as uh, David himself said. That's one of the best songs they ever did. Why did they throw it away on an EP? Heck, it beats me, and I'm really glad that their producer on the next record said that I'm not going to be the guy that makes an inferior version of this because that is the definitive one. Then She Divines Water. She Defines Water is the best song on an album that is filled almost entirely of great songs. That's our beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart. I would also say Devil Song from Revolutionary Sweetheart is just as good. It brings that Captain Beefheart influence, hard rocker. It's got the, uh, the wonderful uh, harmonica in there. Um, and now that I'm already hit the five songs, I'm going to say forget you, and I'm going to include two more from their reunion era, 51.7 from New Roman Times, uh, and then Come Down the Coast from uh, their uh, El, uh, from La, Costita, La Costa Perdida. And then when it comes to Cracker, boy, my two Cracker albums are going to be the debut album, which is just fresh and kind of really carries on a lot of that Camper Van Beethoven spirit. And yet somehow managed to sell twice as many copies. And then Gentleman's Blues, which this is the one that Scott really sold to me, and Scott was right. Scott was absolutely right. Uh, you know, For an album on a major label that didn't really do much business, it was wildly underappreciated. I, I really wish that a lot of other people would check this out. For my five songs, I'm going to say this is Cracker Soul off of the first Cracker album, and also Can I Take My Gun to Heaven, uh, which is hilarious and i know david doesn't sing that but who cares it's still a great song um the next one i would choose is to skip over kerosene hat entirely because everyone knows that album i'm gonna say the good life and james river both from gentlemen's blues come across the james river a fluoride needle and a spoon You come across James River to be my woman again, to be my woman again. You come across that old. Then I will also finally end with We All Shine a Light off of um, an album that we didn't get enough time to spend on, but I really think is fantastic, which is Sunrise in the Land of Milk and Honey. I know it's Scott's favorite of theirs. Um, this is a fantastic band. These are both fantastic bands. David is just you know a great songwriter, great musician, and it's been a pleasure to have him here with us. That will do it for our Political Beach look at Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker with um, someone who can break them down like only someone who was in the band could do. David Lowry, find him on Twitter at David C. Lowry. And the Tricordist online, too. You can even take a class of his at the University of Georgia if you like as well. We thank David so much for the time. Jeff, 
Thank you. We'll do it again next time. You can check us out, of course, on Twitter at political underscore beats. We invite you to subscribe. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in Mondays, the day when new episodes come out, or check us out at nationalreview.com. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.